This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Man, have we got a great show for you today. This is the show where we give you the information, the tools, the skills you need to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You know, no one was no one was born with a handbook. So this is the program where we give you the instructions you need. Today will be no exception. Uh, again, we're going to celebrate Gene Wilder. You got to love Gene Wilder, one of the great uh, comedic actors of our time and uh, passed away. Hmm. Oh, man. All the greats keep passing on. Do you need a tissue, Matt? I do. I loved him. I grew up uh, on watching Blazing Saddles and just... Uh, I don't know if it gets any better than Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein. By the way, today is Frankenstein Day. And how better to celebrate Frankenstein Day than with a little Gene Wilder and Frankenstein? Frankenstein. You're putting me on. No, it's pronounced Frankenstein. Do you also say Froderick? No, Frederick. Well, why isn't it... Frederick Frankenstein. It isn't. It's Frederick Frankenstein. Great line. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Well, today we'll be celebrating uh, his his work and playing some fun uh, bits like that. Also, today we will be talking about the original underclass. We we've mentioned it on the the program quite a bit. Who is behind the Donald Trump sensation? Many are blaming the uh, the white underclass, the the underclass white American falling from their perch. That's why Donald Trump is succeeding. Who else would vote for that crazy guy? Well, we are going to be speaking with a Pulitzer Prize winning um, political reporter. Alex McGinnis will be joining us talking about the fact that uh, the work whites and uh, white Americans have been the working class and, in fact, the original underclass in America since its inception. And a pretty interesting little history lesson ahead for all of us to figure out what's really going on politically. We'll uh, we'll have to get to that. Plus, just a little Trump date, a little Hillary Clinton update as well um, with uh, some problems with Uma Abedin and uh, her husband will be uh, just touching on that briefly. <laughs> Crazy times, folks, as if the election couldn't get any stranger. It just did. But first, let's get to Caitlin Thomas and the headlines. Caitlin, what's going on around the world? Thanks, Matt. Hillary Clinton's national lead over Donald Trump has narrowed slightly to six points, according to the latest NBC News Survey Monkey weekly election tracking poll. Clinton now enjoys 48 percent support, while Trump holds steady with 42 percent. Last week, Clinton led Trump by eight points. Hackers based in Russia were behind two recent attempts to breach state voter registration databases, fueling concerns that the Russian government may be trying to interfere in the U.S. presidential election. Officials say the breaches included the theft of data from as many as 200,000 voter records in Illinois. 
Apple faces a record-setting tax bill of up to $14.5 billion after the European Union ruled Ireland had given it illegal tax benefits. A three-year investigation by the EU's executive branch ruled that Ireland's tax dealings with the California tech giant breached rules on state aid and that Dublin must recover the unpaid taxes plus interest. However, the exact amount could be reduced by agreement or if Apple agreed to pay more tax to other countries. Apple and the Irish government both said they would appeal the decision. And like we talked about this morning, Gene Wilder passed away at the age of 83 on Sunday night due to complications from Alzheimer's disease. According to a statement from his family, the actor chose to keep it a secret so as not to expose his children to the harsh realities of his disease. In a statement made by Wilder, he said he did not want to disappoint the countless young children that would smile or call out to him, there's Willy Wonka. There's your headlines Aww. for this morning, Matt. I know. Thank you. Thanks, Caitlin. Ah, oh, you got to let Willy Wonka. Come on. He's... He's done it all. Gene Wilder, by the way, married um, to Gilda Radner, Rosanna Rosanna Dana from Saturday Night Live. She passed away with cancer. And then Gene Wilder started this movement to help people create or have better diagnoses of cancer, raised $30 million for cancer awareness, basically. Amazing. And we lost him. Mel Brooks, by the way, he he was made famous by doing a lot of Mel Brooks uh, movies, the producers, and yet Mel Brooks outlived him. He's also a widower, too. Yeah. What is the deal? Why do the good have to go so young? 83 is young. Don't look at me that way. It's young? It never used to be young to me. Now it's... Now it's like he's just a spry pup. Is it because it's more achievable now for you? <laughs> it's actually right now less achievable. <laughs> I'm, I used to think, oh, I'll live to 90. Now I'm like, not going to happen. Not going to happen. Well, um, where do you go from Frankenstein? Well, today is also Slinky Day. Mm. Did you ever play with the Slinky? Not really. Why? Never had one. It's Slinky. It's Slinky. Might have been this song. This is one of the great commercials. I used to go crazy trying to get my slinky to go all the way down the stairs. Could you ever do it? Uh Uh-uh. I mean, I could if I threw it. But my slinky never seemed to have the rhythm it needed. It didn't have a long stride, my slinky. It had a short little stride. A little short, stubby, slinky stride. Hmm. My boy wants a slinky dog. You got to get him one. What's the plan? If you, I mean, if you loved him. Yeah, we'll see. And then play that song for him. And you guys could sing that song every day while he's taking the slinky dog down the stairs. No. If you loved him, you would. <laughs> it's also, by the way, Toasted Marshmallow Day. Mmm. Wow, that's kind of an intense fire. That that's fire a nice is a fire. little too big. You need to stand back Whoa, a little bit. Burned my eyebrows. <laughs> that is a big fire. But now they have those really big marshmallows, so right. you can, you know, you can handle a fire like that. Or you have the the stick that's six feet long, so you can stand way back. That was like a, I think that was a forest fire. Because the guy, the guy, the guy down the street went, "Look, gasoline on the fire." Yeah, that was it. Yeah, we had that. That was. Happy Slinky Day, Toasted Marshmallow Day, and Frankenstein Day. Hmm. Frankenstein, according to Gene Wilder. We have got a great show um, today. Uh, Donald Trump still making news about 3-something in the morning, apparently. Donald was up for a drink of water. 
and he gets then thirsty overnight. Sent out a text to everybody um, about the fact that we're still building a wall. Hmm. Don't misunderstand my niceness. Recently, <laughs> we're still going to build a wall. So, is he building the wall or isn't he? I think he said he was going to do it, even if he's not elected president. <laughs> he's just going to go build a wall no matter what. Oh yeah. He, you can't just build a wall if you're not the president, unless she hires you to be the pre- to build the wall. Mm. Maybe Hillary will hire him. I think it's all about zoning. He owns all that land, and so <laughs> is that it. He's out. He's out buying the land to build the wall. What is this? Uh, so it's an, either a wall or a casino, right? That's what he builds. Yeah, golf courses. Maybe he needs he needs a golf course casino with a wall. Could be. But then, what happens if you hit the golf ball over the wall? Well, you're you in can't trouble. get it back. Might be out of bounds. That's a two-stroke penalty. You're in trouble. Did you hear about the Sarah Palin problem? She fell, didn't she? She fell. She hit her head while rock running. Mm. Um, apparently is running up rocks. Yeah, sounds horrible. Yeah. And had needed some stitches, apparently. And uh, while she's, I guess, getting worked up and fixed up, she ended up going kind of on a rant about Hillary mm-hmm. after she posted her. Maybe it was the head injury. She... <laughs> She went off on Hillary. I mean, it's a, it makes sense. You're frustrated. You're upset. But you just had stitches. Maybe just, A, don't text that out. No one needed to see that. Right. But B, I don't know. Maybe don't rant about Hillary. Didn't she kind of, I don't know how, she turned it into something blaming Hillary for something. I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it seemed like she was uh, in a medicated situation and just started typing. Yeah. Or like Donald at three in the morning. She connected her injury to Clinton, sort of. Rock running recently, this is what she said. I tripped over my own two feet and crashed and burned face first. I recovered with the doc super glue. And now any man who asks what happened, I'll refer to just as a mean old sexist bully. Glad for Hillary's protective media precedence. The next woman running for POTUS has no need to answer to much of anything for we got weddings to plan and down dogs to do and cookies in the oven. So just leave us alone, boys. Huh. Part of that's because she has a big black eye. Okay. So I guess she's saying she's blaming her big black eye just on an old sexist bully. The ground? Which is what she's <laughs> saying Hillary Clinton would have blamed it on. This, this seems like a stretch. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then she's, it looks like she's trying to bring in the email with the yoga and yeah. the weddings and cookies and stuff. Leave Hillary alone, she added, exclamation point. All that email evidenced yoga and wedding planning and cookie baking grandma duty wears you out, believe you me. Heck. Even if those of us claiming to be fit as a seasoned fiddle hit bumps in the wellness road. Even I, especially I. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, The rule, that's a really good example. Don't text. (laughs) Stream of consciousness. When you are under anesthesia. Or super glue. (laughs) Maybe the fumes from the super glue. (laughs) It's it's interesting that you haven't, you know, where did Sarah Palin go? Apparently rock running and she fell on her face they're they're trying to get ready now for the donald trump 
Hillary Clinton head-to-head debate. Yes. And they're figuring, they're trying to think, okay, who could help Hillary Clinton beat Donald Trump? They've been bringing in psychologists mm-hmm. to figure out how to get under his skin. Do you think that's necessary? Well, it seems kind of easy. Yeah, it seems easy. She says you can do it with a tweet, right? Yeah. You can bait him with a tweet. But she wants to have him go off script. Yeah. Wants to have him get really emotional because he tends to say things. Mm-hmm. And that would hurt him publicly if he does that. Right. So, she, so she's bringing in counselors, psychologists to figure out. She brought in the guy that wrote The Art of the Deal. She's trying to just figure out what will get under his skin. Mm-hmm. But isn't it obvious it's anything that questions his wealth? Absolutely. His business prowess, mm-hmm. his uh, his hair, probably, I yep. guess, his his hands, that got a big fight. It doesn't seem like you need to pay for all this other support. It's all right there. Yeah, but she's got the money, apparently. That's I true. saw the how much money's been raised versus between the two campaigns. There's quite a bit of money out yeah, there. Yeah, she's doing great. Yeah. Speaking of Trump, yeah. public policy polling, they put out some interesting... P three. They they do phone. They get on. You know the phone call. People figure out. Ask him some weird questions. Um, they asked, "What things do you prefer over Trump, or more than Trump?" It wow. says um, American voters prefer getting stuck in the middle seat on an airplane <laughs> to Donald Trump. Forty five percent to forty three percent. They'd rather sit in the middle seat. Yes. Trump only beats bedbugs by twenty two percentage points. Though among black and Latino voters, not only bedbugs beat Trump, but also the bubonic plague, mosquitoes, Ryan Lochte, and carnies. Wow. Yeah. So carnival uh, employees, Ryan Lochte, who else? Um, Mosquitoes, the bubonic plague. (laughs) That's horrible. But then it says maybe this isn't great news for Hillary Clinton since she's now only beating Trump by five points among likely voters, 48 to 43. Like cut in half, basically. Her lead's been cut in half. Yeah. Says there are big numbers was uh, Trump's popularity numbers among black voters. 97% unfavorable amongst black voters. But you're telling me I got 3%, Donald. You're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> 3% unsure. Okay. <laughs> 0% favorable, according to the Three poll. 3%. <laughs> Three percent still aren't sure. Well, I don't know. Is he the plague? I'll take him. I'll take the plague. Three percent. Yeah. I don't wow, know. that's crazy though. But he still cut the lead in half. But let's all remember, the national polls don't probably matter because it's going to come down to state polls and certain states that have to win the electoral votes. Certain states are more important than others. Not to be rude to the other forty-five states no, in I the country. No, I think to be rude because it's it's like an eight-state race basically and i think by the way california needs to they just they they're, go, ne- they're never in the game they're they go, always last they they're go always, out there to get money yeah that's why you go to california just bring me the money yeah tragic uh situation for uba abedin hillary's top aide uh her husband uh former congressman anthony weiner who's already been caught in two scandals again Three. now caught in the third scandal this, right I, I saw yesterday this is the fourth oh brother is it really? So she's announced that she is separating from him, and her husband was caught uh, texting inappropriate pictures, which included a picture of her son. Yeah, he was in the background. Yeah. Kind of to the side. I was and like, apparently what are you doing? that just – that was it. You can't see your son on the front of the New York Post Ugh. in a scandal with your ex- with your husband. So – She's separating and sat. That's a hard thing, right? I mean, imagine the boy now has to live through 
the that and the parents and all of that. Plus, Uma Abedin has to take care of that during a really important race in her life. It's a crazy world, folks. And probably, I don't know, we'll see if uh, Donald Trump cannot turn that into fodder, but who knows. We will take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be speaking with Alec McGinnis, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter, talking about white working Americans, the original underclass. Many are trying to figure out how Donald Trump has risen uh, so quickly to the place he is. Well, one reason they're saying is because of white working Americans that are sick and tired of being overlooked. We're going to get behind the scenes on that one, figure out what's really going on. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in the 2008 and 2012 presidential elections, the term white working class was often associated with integrity and virtue. White working voters were a key demographic, and the Democrats were trying to to collect them. And also, the white working American is defined as a Caucasian American with no four-year degree. Today, however, the connotation of the term has changed. From a term of respect to a term associated with, uh, I guess, a potential liability, the demise of the underclass of white American is mimicking the past trends of African-American teens decades before. And uh, because of this, we hear more and more about the disenfranchised uh, white American, which, you know, they're claiming many are arguing was what led to the rise of Bernie Sanders, of Donald Trump. So here to help us explore this question of, uh, of white working Americans and, um, and maybe give us a little history lesson as well is Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Alec McGillis. Uh, Alec, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, your great work for ProPublica uh, as well as an independent uh, producer there for them. Talk to us about your article in TheAtlantic.com uh, about white uh, working Americans. Is, this, is it really what's leading to the Bernie movement, the Donald Trump movement? What's going on with the white working American? Well, that's a question that a lot of people are asking uh, themselves right now. There, you've got these very um, worrisome trends among uh, uh, the sort of uh, white working class or white lower class, however you want to uh, dis- define it. Um, even aside from what we've been seeing politically, you've got these very worrisome trends, such as um, rising mortality rates in the last past few years among certain um, sectors of, of uh uh, lower educated white Americans. You've got, of course, the terrible heroin epidemic that's, right. that's wreaking such havoc among uh, white Americans, and then also rising suicide rates. Um, so there's there's clearly some some very troubling things going on. My my piece was actually a that ran in, in the current issue of the Atlantic magazine was a review of two books that um, come at this question in different ways. Two really quite remarkable books that I would suggest strongly, strongly recommend for your listeners. One is a history book by a woman, uh, a history professor called Nancy Eisenberg, and the book is called White Trash. It's a very provocative title, um, but it's a book basically about the white American underclass 
showing how far back in this country that underclass goes, really to the very earliest days of our founding, and showing also how the sort of scorn with which we look at and, dis- and talk about uh, these people goes way back to our founding as well. The other book was a memoir um, by a guy called J.D. Vance, who's a young man who grew up um, in a uh, manufacturing town in southwest Ohio. His family comes from Appalachia, from eastern Kentucky, um, and he, his book is called Hillbilly Elegy, and it's basically a, a look at his people and sort of what's gone wrong with his people. And in that book, it's a very appealing, um, provocative memoir that is actually doing incredibly well. It's, it's, I think it's above Harry Potter on a bestseller list now. Um, <laughs> wow. So clearly hit a nerve. Yeah. Is there something about that? And, that? and that's the one where he talks about his own family in Appalachia, right? Is that, right. Is that the story? Yes. Is- it's, yes. It's basically uh, asking what has kind of gone wrong with um, his broader community, what he calls sort of hillbilly America, um, both both the residents of Appalachia proper, but then also the the many uh, people who move from Appalachia to um, to to Rust Belt towns like the one he grew up in. And really, this is—I mean, I, I guess these are perfectly timed for this election, but they they you know maybe they're too broad sweeping, I guess, in their generalizations about what's happening to white America. Is that, is that, I mean, talk to us, what really is, I mean, the heroin addictions, the opiates, all of those are on the rise, like you were talking, incited suicide uh, is going up, mortality rates. But is this, what's really, when I guess in the long run of it, what's really happening to the white working class? Well, so in my piece, what I argued is that I, I basically, I, I kind of, I took the piece as an opportunity to challenge one of the theories that, that's out there, and it's a, a theory that you hear a lot on the left these days. Um, and it's a theory that I find a little too glib. It's basically the notion that working-class white Americans are in such despair uh, because they feel like they're losing their spot on the racial pecking order right. in this country, and that they're, they feel like they're being their... They're, you know, it was always the case that no matter how sort of um, low down the ladder, class ladder you were as a white American, you could always sort of have the reassurance that that still below you were the racial and ethnic minorities, um, and and that now somehow these white Americans feel like their their perch is being threatened, that they're being passed on the ladder by um, the growing numbers of of, um, of racial and ethnic minorities in this country. I, I find that theory bothersome on several levels. Um, first of all, it it doesn't really square that much with reality in the sense that um, yes, we have a we've had a uh, black president the last uh, eight years, but it's not as if um, minority America is going gangbusters. Yeah, right thriving. Now. And yeah, I mean they. Blacks and Hispanics were hit even harder by the recession than anyone else. They were really just hammered by it. Um, any, you know, all sorts of metrics you look at, they're you know just just still really having a hard time. Um, you know, look at cities like the one I live in in Baltimore, and Black America is not exactly you know uh, hunky dory these days. Hmm. And and so there's that problem. So, you know, where's the reality that's fueling this perception among white Americans that there's being somehow passed on the ladder? There's, but there's also the, the fact that to, this, to ascribe these, these major troubling public health trends to this kind of racial anxiety comes pretty close to sort of suggesting that, that these 
that these troubles that lower class white Americans are having are are not all that deserving of sympathy. Right. Um, that it's like you know almost as if they kind of have it coming to them, you know, because they're they're so hung up on their on their racial status. And I, I find that very um, worrisome to that that kind of attitude. So I use this piece to basically propose a different um, theory, which you know obviously it's these are all just conjectures, but. My the alternate theory that I propose is that that what's driving a lot of this despair is the fact that the places where a lot of these people live are in really uh, bad shape, and that um, and I've been to a lot of these communities, whether in Appalachia or places like Southwest Ohio, and and these places are really are are having a hard time, and and if you're living in these places, you just can't underestimate how overestimate how depressing it is. To, to be there, and, to, and especially if you've known the place when it was um, in better shape, that that comparison between how it was years ago, how it was when your parents and grandparents were living there, um, with what it what it is today, is just immensely demoralizing. And and so that seems to me a much more plausible comparison that people are making than than some kind of a racial comparison. Hmm. And and you see that and. I mean, you do. You hear that over and over, almost as a way to to kind of denigrate a follower of Donald Trump. You know, they're just maybe they they are they're they're whiners. They're people that um, have lost their position in status and hierarchy because of the minorities coming in. I mean, it really does right. has this overtone, this racist overtone almost. Yeah, it's. I mean, look, there's there's no question that there's. There, there are racial elements to the Donald Trump surge. I mean, yeah, right. Um, he has he has um, tapped into you know some uh, at, at times some pretty nasty sentiments and sort of um, you, I mean, you might even say that he's kind of um, not just tapped into them but kind of um, promoted them about himself. Right. In a way. Um, but but I, I I have a hard time um, ascribing the entirety of a major political happening to racism. I mean, mm-hmm. there are millions and millions of people who voted for him, and that's, that's not the only thing going on. It's, it's wrapped up in, in other forms of resentment. The, um, you know, the other form of resentment that it's wrapped up with is, as I see it from having talked to these, these voters, is, is resentment, again, it comes back to this idea of place. You know, if you're in a place that's not doing well, you look to the places in this country that are doing incredibly well, um, these sort of coastal b- bubbles of, of New York and Washington and San Francisco and places like that, and, and you feel this great resentment toward them. You feel resentment toward them and, and, and the, the sort of you know, so-called coastal elites who, who live in them, and, mm. and that is something that Trump has tapped into very well. I mean, he, voters, his supporters, love the fact that he is upsetting and offending the coastal elites that they feel um, such resentment toward, and mm. it's uh, you know one of the defining aspects of our political sort of situation right now in this country, in our economic situation, is that we have these huge gaps between between regions in terms of just regional prosperity, and those gaps have gotten bigger and bigger in recent years, and 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 I, as I see it, that that's really leading to a to a um, kind of a regional resentment that that voters in these places are feeling. Oh, so true. And um, as we, uh, one of the things I loved about your article, you you brought up not just the fact that uh, you know the a lot of the minorities in this country have been suffering just as much as white, or more so than even the the white 
um, the white middle class but or underclass. But you also brought up the history of white working Americans as being the original underclass. We always think that they, you know, they came here, they started on top, and they've just slowly worked their way down. But your your article uh, talks more about that they came here as the underclass. Exactly. That this is this is really a. Um, at the heart of Nancy Eisenberg's book that I reviewed, this book called White Trash, this history book, and it was really quite eye-opening to me. I, I did not realize that so much, basically, that there was this white underclass from the very start. Which, what she describes is that England, the the um, you know English elites, the British elites, back in the 17th century, saw these colonies as a place to slough off. Um, and sort of discard the unwanted elements of British society. Hmm. Um, yes, there were there were people who also saw England as a as a uh, saw the colonies as a place to to make a buck and and to um, you know to go out and and um, and be, be to explore and and um, make a killing in the new in the new America. But there were but there were a lot of others who saw the country as a place to get rid of the. The sort of the, the vagrant element um, that was crowding um, British cities back then, and and so you had, um, you know, the, the indentured servants, but then just a whole, you know, whole just other just um, class of people that were um, sloughed off over here, and and so and then, and then failed from the very start here to, to 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 climb the ladder. We have this notion that you know everyone who came to America, um, you know, at least white Americans, white white colonists who came to America. Um, climbed climb the ladder to success, but in fact, a lot of these people did not. They, from the very start, were completely shut out of any kind of land ownership, and so you had this um, really kind of a squatter class, um, almost from the very start, um, that, that Eisenberg argues traces all the way through to our present time. Man, I mean, it's... It's kind of uh, – it's also endearing in a way. It's, it's – I guess it just shows power that that we could still forge an entire nation um, on, I guess, the those that were cast out. That, that, no, it's true. I mean, it's, it's a um, – she, she basically argues that we need to basically realize that these people have been a very, very central part of our country from the very start – that um, we've that they've um, you know been a big big part of building our country, and that we've not we've sort of ignored them and and, and treated them with scorn um, f- from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And, and she's basically her book is arguing that we need to, to 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 reckon with them and reckon with the fact that we've been that we've been shutting them out um, and and sort of uh, relegating them to the margins from the very start. Man, uh, powerful stuff. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Alex McGillis. He is uh, the 2016 Robin Toner Prize winner for excellence in political reporting and received a Pulitzer Prize in 2008. He is a journalist who covers politics and government for ProPublica. And uh, we'll be right back continuing this discussion of his article, The Despair of Poor White Americans, the Original Underclass. He's an interesting, interesting lesson for all of us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. Welcome. 
Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are joined by journalist Alex McGillis, and he is an, a journalist that uh, covers politics and government for ProPublica, an independent nonprofit newsroom that produces investigative journalism in the public interest. He's also, a uh, in 2008, received the Pulitzer Prize as well as in 2016, the Robin Toner Prize for Excellence in Political Reporting. And Alex, thank you again so much for being with us. Sure. Glad to be here. Talk to us about um, – it's it's a really weird kind of situation. It seems like there's a race to the bottom to determine uh, who now is at the bottom. And um, it, it's almost like certain people are throwing white Americans under – the the bus for you know now they've lost their position in the country so that's why they're so angry which is why we have an angry Donald Trump kind of movement um, but in the end is it is there hope for the white working American is there a path to a better life does does it does the American dream still exist um, based on your views uh, for the white middle class American boy I mean that that's that is the big question, and the, the the second book that I discussed in my in my piece, this memoir by J.D. Vance about growing up in this manufacturing town in Southwest Ohio, he he makes the argument in his book that it's and it's basically a conservative argument that um, that what it's going to take for people in his world to um, to get over this this sort of crisis that, are, that that they're in right now is is for them to to take more responsibility and and just to kind of stop you know blaming blaming people blaming Obama mm-hmm. blaming corporations and and you know sort of pull themselves up by the bootstraps and and um, and get their lives together in a way that he has been able to himself so he you know despite growing up in this this pretty hard Knox um, upbringing he managed to um, he went to the Marines went to Ohio State and then went to Yale Law School and is now a very prosperous um, executive out in Silicon Valley at only like age 31 or 32 mm. and so he's he, he's making that sort of um, personal responsibility um, argument um, in, in a way that's actually you know empathetic he's, he's not it's not scolding but it's that he's basically saying look folks this is what you need to we need to do this ourselves. This is something no one, no one can help us. We need to get our act together. Um, the, you know, as I as I discussed in my piece, um, that's you, one can certainly see where he's coming from because he he did manage to to do that himself in his life. Um, but uh, the fact is that there is so much more that you know that we as a country can do for these for these communities as well. Yeah, and. Um, First of all, it's worth pointing out that you know that he, he that J.D. Vance himself, you know, got had had a hand up, you know, at various points on the way. Um, you know, even even just the fact of you know that of the, the the big role that the military played in in his um, in getting him on the right track. You know, that the military is you know one of our greatest federal institutions. So, um, but I I make the case in in the piece for um, some kind of a Almost New Dealish sort of effort, major effort for um, for Appalachia, which is really just reeling right now with uh, the with the decline of the coal industry. And um, we, you know, there are, there are many reasons for the decline of the coal industry. And one reason is that the government has decided, um, you know, 
justifiably that coal is something that we should be moving away from given its massive environmental costs and but but having made that decision the government you know really ought to be thinking more about some kind of a a, a major plan to to help these communities that were so reliant on this industry even similar to the way that we helped out tobacco farmers when we were trying to get move move away from that right um and so I make the case for that. But then more broadly, I, I make the case for not just for, you know, the government to, to do X or Y, but, but also just for us, for, for those in, in this country who are living in these very prosperous, um, prosperous bubbles, to simply have a greater consciousness of, of, of how, how rough things have been in and so many other communities in the country um, that are really slipping behind, and just to have more more empathy toward them, and and just to realize that things are really not um, going as well there as they are in these in in these um, these cities that are just uh, really really flourishing these days. Mm. And again, it just comes back to these gaps. These gaps have just gotten so big, and one of the costs of those gaps is that you have this uh, real. Um, Kind of, I mean, just a bubble mentality in, yeah. in places like Washington, New York, San Francisco, where people just have no notion of of what people elsewhere in the country are dealing with. Well, and it's funny because you you were talking about Baltimore, Washington, and Baltimore neighbors, and yet there's still a bubble oh, yeah. between those two. Definitely, I mean, it's it's extraordinary. They're forty forty <laughs> minutes away, and they are completely different worlds. Is and, that is so? How do you because like I think a piece like the one that you wrote and uh, was in the Atlantic dot com, this piece is a great way I think to educate maybe you know infiltrate the bubble, spread the the spread the germs I guess. But because I see it in the West as well, we we have and you see the mo you know the situation up in Oregon where. A group of ranchers are frustrated by the government. Then they think the government's back east in their bubble, not understanding the issues of the West. Then you have Appalachia. You have the Rust Belt. You have, you know, all of these decisions being made. Um, is it – how do we spread that? You're, you're a journalist. Is this a media failure? Is this a – what is this? A teacher – an education failure? Is it a government it leadership part, failure? I think it is partly a media failure. Because the um, the media itself has become much more consolidated, concentrated in the bubble places. Mm, yeah. um, the um, we you know you used to have the media used to be more sort of dispersed around the country, um, but now that you've had this this really um, terrible decline of of sort of metro newspapers, and you've had much more of a consolidation of the media in in New York and Washington, um, I mean, you, just, you can see it just even just in the job numbers, newsroom job numbers, they've declined, you know, dropped off the cliff around the country. But then in um, New York and Washington, they've, they've grown quite a bit. And so you have, when the media itself is, is living in the places that are doing so well, and so it's just kind of an out-of-sight, out-of-mind thing, mm-hmm. where the media itself loses sight of what's going on out there. Does Does the presidential... Do either, I guess, or any of the presidential candidates seem to have their finger on the pulse of what's really happening in your well, eyes? You know, Donald Trump has obviously been, been the one who has been capitalizing on this amount of this resentment, even though, as many have pointed out, 
it's, it's almost kind of comical for right. him to be the vehicle for it as a as a um, very very wealthy man. You know, possibly probably not a not as wealthy as you'd like us to think. Yeah. But, but a very wealthy man who flies around in a gold plated airplane um, and you know lives in a in a Manhattan penthouse. Uh, so it's it's unlikely. It's just it's kind of absurd in the one hand that he he's been the one tapping into it. Um, again, though, I my my sense is that he's what he's tapping into is in part a the resentment that people in these places are feeling toward um, toward the coastal bubbles. The fact is, as as wealthy as he may be, he's very much not your typical coastal elite. I mean, because he's right. so there's this kind of um, which I mean, just kind of crassness about him uh-huh. that um, that sets him apart from um, fr- from your sort of average um, Wall Street guy in a sharp suit. Um, and then Hillary, you know, Hillary is someone who used to pride herself on on being sort of uh, somehow in tune with these with these sorts of voters. I mean, she's the one who. Um, almost beat Obama in the primaries in 08 because she was doing so well in states like Ohio and Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, now, though, in hindsight, it looks more and more as if that success that she had was was really more as a foil to Barack Obama, who who was sort of an alien figure to a lot of these voters back then, than it, than it was some kind of sign of her own bond with with them. It, you know, it's, she's not helped her case in this regard by. By you know what she, what she's been up to these last two years, going around the country giving three hundred thousand dollars speeches one after another to to Goldman Sachs and Deutsche Bank, right? Um, and, and saying she's going to shut down coal, exact saying she's going to shut down coal. <laughs> she's which was a you know terrible slip of the tongue, and she's she's now she does have this you know her own big plan to 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 help Appalachia, which is you know if it's is is. Hopefully, you know. Hopefully, she'll follow through on that. If she's if she's elected, she did have a pretty good riff in her acceptance speech in Philadelphia uh, about these about these communities. Um, so you, you, she definitely has a sense of what's going on out there. The question is whether she's sort of a, a, a credible um, a, a credible messenger for for them. Yeah. Is I guess does this mean that there's going to be a swing? Do you sense of these voters that maybe, I guess, historically had been, I don't know, I guess they've gone back and forth from Republican right. to Democrat. Are they going back Republican now? There's been, a, in fact, a steady movement, gradual movement um, of a lot of these voters toward the Republicans, uh, especially in the South, of course. In the South is where you've seen almost a wholesale flip of, of um, work, white working class voters to the Republican Party from the Democrats. Then Appalachia, you've seen it more recently, that switch happening. And, and then in the sort of further north, in the Rust Belt states, you're, you're seeing it as well. Uh, I, interestingly, Barack Obama, for all of his troubles with working-class voters, actually did pretty well with a lot of white working-class voters in, in states like Ohio and Pennsylvania. He did better than, I think, is commonly assumed. And so there, there is room for Hillary to lose ground there with some of these voters. It's, I actually have met some Obama-Trump voters, which might be hard to believe, but they are out there. Interesting. Um, So she, I think she is going to lose some of these voters, and, but, but that's probably not going to be fatal for her, because at the same time, she's going to be picking up a whole bunch of more educated, highly educated white voters who have voted Republican in the past and are now going to turn against Trump. Can we, um, can we also, 
is there hope that we could also see through this as as not a racial thing, but but I mean, meaning a white we have a white underclass in certain parts of the country that are just suffering and struggling, as well as a minority underclass, maybe in other areas, inner cities that are also struggling their own thing. Is is there a way that we can kind of unify the struggle, or do you sense it will always have to be a, a race issue, a black and white issue? Well, um, you know, this is the, that. Years ago, the Democrats, Democratic Party, um, became a majority, supermajority party by, in fact, being able to unify those. I mean, yeah. There was a time, you know, the FDR coalition was basically, you know, a unification of, of what those two elements that you just described, you know, plus, plus other elements. And uh, so it has happened in the past. It's, it's, it's harder to imagine now, um, in large part, in part because of, how the parties have sorted themselves out, and 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 in the sense that you know these more conservative Southern Democrats, what used to be conservative Southern Democrats, really have swung to the Republican Party, and and it's hard to see that reversing itself. Yeah. Um, but but for for that to happen, for what you described to happen, one thing it would require is for the Democrats to decide that they really, in fact, do want. To, to to help these people, the the, the, the sort of white lower class voters, um, and and the, the the Democrats talk a good game about this, but they're about wanting to help any you know anyone in need. But there are plenty of uh, folks you know liberals these days who who kind of feel like you know what if these people are giving us a hard time um, politically, you know enough with it. You know we don't really need them absolutely to, mm. to win presidential elections these days. And, you know, we've got our new coalition, and, and that's that. I, I find that a lamentable attitude. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Alex, we, we appreciate you. That's a great insight, and we're just honored to have uh, someone of your caliber on the show. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was great. Again, his name's Alex McGinnis, and you got to go check out uh, this article and others, The Despair of Poor White Americans, from um, a wonderful uh, journalist. Um, with ProPublica. We will take a break, my friends, when we come back, just do a quick wrap-up of the show. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, very, very uh, interesting article there from Alex McGinnis. It's, again, when you think about it, where is there not a struggle, right? Go to southwestern states in the United States. There's a struggle with Hispanic Americans and uh, try, just trying to make uh, make their way. Go to inner cities, African-Americans in the inner city struggling to make their way. Appalachia and some of the other um, parts of maybe the Rust Belt, trying people, white Americans trying to make their way. Uh, ranchers in the West trying to make their way. Folks, this isn't about race per se. I mean, I know we can always frame it under the race umbrella, but this is about human beings that are suffering and trying to do the best they can. And it's very uh, – we are still, I guess, a United States of America, which would be the the hope that our politicians could get in there and find ways to deal with all of those groups, 
that are struggling in their distinct ways that they're struggling instead of just arguing that one group is more oppressed than the next group. In the end, um, there's, there's a lot of good and a, a ton of opportunity for all of us as we do this. So let's just figure it out. Let's find a way to choose the right leaders, and that's going to be your responsibility this election season. Find the leaders in your area that seem to have answers to those problems and don't necessarily just divide us into a bunch of buckets, right? Let's try unifying us once and for all. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. Stick with us. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. But Charlie, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he always wanted. What happened? He lived happily ever after. You gotta love that. Gene Wilder, star of Willy Wonka, dead at 83 years old. Um, he was suffering from Alzheimer's disease, and his family says it. Uh, he was still able to recognize his family. He was still able to know those closest around him. Uh, Alzheimer's disease didn't take that from him. But uh, Gene Wilder, dead at 83, some of his... Breakout, uh, you know, Brooks, Mel Brooks films, uh, The Producers, Young Frankenstein, and also Blazing Saddles. I'll never forget. I think it was him listening to the rails on the train, and he could hear the train coming. Was in, 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 was in Blazing Saddles. That's how he knew oh. the train was coming. He could hear, listen to the rails. Well, that was from Willy Wonka, and every time I would get sick growing up— uh, I would stay home from school and watch that movie. Would you really? Mm-hmm. And what a great ending. What happens with the person that gets everything they want? They live happily ever after. It ah, always works out that way. It always works out that way. Except for when it doesn't. We've got a great show for you today. Again, celebrating the life of uh, Gene Wilder. Um, also, it's Slinky Day. Not a bad day. If you've you know, if you got a game and you want to go play on the stairs all day. Burn some holes in your tough skin jeans. Slinky. It's slinky. It's mm-hmm. For fun, it's By the way, once those are tangled up, that's throw them away. Next. It's funny. I hand them to my new baby, grandbaby, and she's not interested. But if I hand her my phone, she'll suck on it all day. As disgusting as that is. Sad, sad stuff. It's also Toasted Marshmallow Day and Frankenstein Day, which uh, if you ask Gene Wilder in Young Frankenstein, it's Frankenstein. Good stuff. Good stuff. Today we've got a great show for you as well. We will be talking about the 10 Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds that Make a Business Great. It's a book uh, written by Joel C. Peterson, who has got a lot, I think, to teach us. He is the uh, current chairman of the board of JetBlue Airways. And we are going to be picking his brain about the 10 laws of trust. 
We we need it. Heaven knows we need more trust in society, especially with our presidential candidates who are struggling to uh, have people trust them. But first, before we get to all of that and all the other headlines, let's take a, a quick uh, break and go talk and, and actually listen to Caitlin Thomas find out about the headlines of the day. Caitlin? Thanks, Matt. Republican donor Meg Whitman, who announced that she was supporting Hillary Clinton's campaign, will be on the campaign trail in Denver on Tuesday. Whitman, the Hewlett-Packard executive and former California Republican nominee for governor, has been attending Clinton fundraisers and is expected to address how people can reach across the aisle to support Clinton. Donald Trump said Colin Kaepernick should leave the United States and find a country that works better for him after protesting the national anthem. Trump told radio host Dory Monson on Monday that he's aware of the 49ers quarterback sitting during the anthem to protest what he said is a country that opposes oppresses black people. Trump responded, I have followed it and I think it's personally not a good thing. I think it's a terrible thing. And, you know, maybe he should find a country that works better for him. Let him try because it's not going to happen. It is acceptable now for doctors to drop patients who refuse vaccinations on non-medical grounds, the American Academy of Pediatrics said yesterday in a policy statement. The new position comes as 87% of pediatricians surveyed said they dealt with parents who did not want their children to be vaccinated, up from 75% 10 years ago. The organization said dropping patients due to vaccination hesitancy should only be a last resort. And lastly, Entertainment Tonight is reporting that former Texas governor and two-time GOP presidential candidate Rick Perry will be among the contestants on the 23rd season of Dancing with the Stars, set to premiere September 12th on ABC. The lineup, which will be announced officially next week, includes Vanilla Ice and Olympic swimmer Ryan Lochte. Sweet! It should be an interesting group. So there you have it. My money's on Perry. No. Every governor's a great dancer. Thanks, Caitlin. Wow. Vanilla Ice, Mm -hmm. Ryan Lochte, and... Perry. Huh. Is he going to announce uh, his candidacy on the show? I think it's too late. Apparently. Well, he, he did run. Yeah. If you remember. Oh, was he one of the 17? Two years ago, apparently. Yeah. He um, apparently, uh, I read an article yesterday that a lot of people now, believe it or not, regret nominating Trump. Really? Yeah. And they, they kind of wish that they could have a redo. Mm. Say what? It's like a Brexit all over again. It's like a Brexit all over again. Did you just say that? I did. It was an echo. It was great. Hey, uh, we have to get to this really important message because we've we've uh, we so value the message that because honestly, it'll save a lot of lives. Hmm. Listen to this story and listen to the PSA we've put together for it. A Michigan woman is taken into custody after she tries to escape through the ceiling of the Kent County courthouse. Okay. She wanted out, right? The sheriff's department says the 27-year-old woman, Jessica Lynn Cato, um, who, was, who was in the courthouse because she had two criminal bench warrants, one for contempt of court, one for a probation violation. She was then court-ordered to take a class on decision-making, right? Like, you right. got you to gotta learn. She's shown, to, a, she's shown a trend of behavior. Yeah. Maybe needed some tips. Yeah. You need some skills, some tips on how to make better decisions. The class was called Thinking Matters. Mm. And apparently, that's when she tried to escape through the ceiling of the courthouse. Which, she she didn't put on her thinking cap. She didn't. 
And that... So this was before the class. She hadn't even yes. taken the class yet. So no, she didn't have the tools. She didn't yet have the tools. No. So because of that, we, we wanted to highlight, and we're going to play it regularly on the show, the importance of thinking. Whenever you find yourself before a judge, think before you plead. If you've recently gone through a messy breakup with your significant other, and you want to get back at them by vandalizing their car, think before you key. Mm -hmm. If you've had too much Dr. Pepper to drink on a long road trip, and decide to stop on the side of the road to relieve yourself, think before you wee. And the next time you're taking a court-ordered class on decision-making called Thinking Matters and are toying with the idea of attempting a getaway via the ceiling, please think before you flee. This message brought to you by thinkers across America. Hmm. Great advice. Sounded really old. It was. We found it in our archives. Interesting. Where did we find that, Jeffrey? Um, gosh, I had to dig deep for that one. That's like 50s, I think. Yeah. 1950s. Can't you remember ever wanting to escape any of your classes, though? Oh, yeah. But I learned to think before I flee. Or key, or we, or plea. Well, I knew that you couldn't climb into the ceiling and get out in the hallway. Yeah. There was a wall in the way. Right. So you'd have to probably get out into the hallway before you climbed into the ceiling to get somewhere. So you actually thought through right. how and, to climb through. See, if she had done that, the she wouldn't have been The ducting for the air conditioning was small, so you, I couldn't fit. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't an option. I pretty much needed to walk out the door. <laughs> well, the thing about the show, we want to give people more tools, more information, yeah. I mean, more you, skills. You have your dumb criminal segment where you give tips on well, how let's to— Let's not call them dumb. Well, they are. Yeah. Well, that's an example. They wouldn't be as dumb if they would just think. Before you they, try to give them tips on how to improve. Yeah, because we care. And they're not going to get it anywhere else. No. I mean, you don't see CNN doing those PSAs. No, they don't. You don't see... They it, always stand on the side of law and order. Yeah, you don't see MSNBC doing it. You don't see Fox. None of them. None of them! Just us. Because we care. We're here to help you think. Ah. <sighs> Feel good about us right now. Um, anything going on in the headlines we need to be worried the, about? This story out of North Korea. Now, in the past, these stories have been, I guess, found to be inflated. Yeah, like exaggerated. A little bit. Okay. Or, or quite a bit. Whichever. Like, like there was family members of of uh, Supreme Leader Kim Jong Un who were supposedly uh, executed, and then about six months later, they pop up in a meeting with a uh, promotion. To a higher rank. So they were almost killed. Yeah. Or then, they were said to be killed and then they're back. Well, there's another story here. Yeah. Kim Jong-un has allegedly had two men put to death using a method he's been said to have used before by anti-aircraft gun. What? South Korean newspapers reporting by way of an unnamed source that two men were publicly executed earlier this month identified the men as a high-ranking official in the education ministry and the former agriculture minister. The men alleged offenses. Uh, One fell asleep in a meeting with Kim Jong-un and was arrested on site and intensively questioned. Uh, (laughs) Corruption charges followed. The other 
Unspecified policy proposals he had pushed for were seen as a direct challenge to Kim Jong-un's leadership. So wow. one guy fell asleep. The other guy disrespected the leader. Allegedly, both were executed with military hardware. But like, it seems like overkill. It seems like, yeah, he was sending a message. Yeah. Message received. Message received. <laughs> I'm not dead. Think I'll go for a walk. <laughs> and in other extremely unrelated news. Okay. The Texas State Fair is going on. Yes. Or will be going on soon. That is a big fair. Part of the uh, celebration for the 28 years of the Texas uh, State Fair for this woman, her name is Ruth Hans, is no stranger to the world of fair food. Pardon? Fair food. Fair food. It's Ruth's second time to be chosen as the Big Tex Choice Awards finalist. Her first winning uh, time winning was... Uh, one of two coveted titles for the first time in the Big Tech's Choice Awards history. America's favorite childhood dessert is given the State Fair of Texas Twist, a classic cherry-flavored Jello mm. in a panko-crusted breading, mm. flash-fried to perfection, and then dusted with powdered sugar. Prepared with a tasty topping of whipped cream and cherry garnish, the dish is, per- is uh, the perfect amount of crunch to complement the jiggle. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Deep fried Jello. You know what? That's what my wife just said about me the other day when I was walking through the kitchen. You're the perfect amount of crunch and the right amount of jiggle. Yes. All right. Romantic. Does that sound appetizing at all? Not deep fried Jello. No. How do you deep fry Jello? Well, you take the Jello, you put a bread, uh, a nice pinch yeah, of breading. I know, but no, but how do you not? Fryer. How does it not melt? This is Jello. It's, it's flash fried. Ah, sorry. Didn't wasn't familiar with the fly fry flash frying it's, term. It's a quick. It's a quick taste flash of fry. fry. So, is it on a stick? I everything's on a stick at the fair. Exactly. Yeah, I would eat that on a stick. Right. Don't That's, we have a state fair in Utah going on too? We Probably. Will. Yeah. Nobody goes though. Well, sure they do. Well, we don't have deep fried Jello. No, but uh, at the the other dishes are Caribbean pineapple cornucopia. Mm. And corn is spelled with a K, of course. Of course. Uh, State Fair cookie fries. Mm. Deep fried bacon burger dog slider. Uh. On a stick. (laughs) (laughs) Southern fried chicken and dumplings. Man. Dumplings spelled Um, L-I-N-S. Injectable great balls of barbecue. Ooh, injectable. Yeah, I'm not sure what What those are. Where does one inject a meatball? Here's Here's one. Fernie's down home chicken pot pie pocket with mac and cheese dip. Holy cow. There's a lot going on in that dish. So you dip? Down home chicken pot pie pocket. So it's like a hot pocket. Chicken Chicken pot pot pie pie hot pocket. With mac and cheese dip. Hot pocket. What do you think? Can we get Jim Gaffigan on the show? He's going to be in town in December. Let's do it. Let's do it. And then you dip your hot pocket in mac and cheese? Apparently. Holy cow. That's a good meal. Everything is bigger and better in Texas. I'll tell you that much. Wow. That's cool. Now I'm really hungry. But first, before we get to have lunch, we got a big hitter in the in the studio today, folks. Joel C. Peterson will be joining us, chairman of JetBlue, and he's here to teach us 10 laws of trust, building the bonds that make a great a business great. 
which, by the way, is it not time we learn about trust? We've got two presidential candidates that are struggling to grow the trust factor. We'll see what uh, Joel Peterson has to teach us. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. We have a great guest in studio with us today. Joel C. Peterson joins us. And uh, Joel is a, um, he's, how do we put this? He's an author, but author may very well be the least of his, uh, of his accolades. He's a graduate uh, from the School of Business at Stanford University. He's also uh, the chairman of the board of over, uh, of, uh, of, by the way, let me name 10 companies he's been chairman of the board of, of overseers at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He's the founding partner and chairman of Peterson Partners, a Salt Lake-based investment management firm. He was the chief executive officer of Trammell Crow Company and uh, currently is the chairman of the board at JetBlue. More importantly, maybe for us today, he's the author of the book, The Ten Laws of Trust. Building the bonds that make a business great. Joel, thanks for being here with us today. Nice to be with you, Matt. You have a great history. Also on the board at Franklin Covey Company. I've been on the board at Franklin Covey for 25 years. That's a long, that's a long road. Yeah. And of success. Yeah. So talk to us about your book, um, Building the Bond that Make Great Business Great. That's trust, right? So here we have two presidential candidates right now that are struggling deeply in trust. Yeah, they're both deeply distrusted. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think it's 46% of the population for both of them think they are less trustworthy than most politicians. Wow. And politicians are the least trusted of any – it used to be used car salesmen. Yeah, it did. And then attorneys and whatever. Now it's politicians are the politicians, least trusted Politicians, hey, they won. Yeah. They're the head <laughs> yeah. of the pack. So, so as a businessman that's uh, succeeded in many of these – in many areas – Talk about uh, the impact of trust. How, by the way, is trust earned? Is trust given? How does how does one acquire trust? And what would you what would you advise these two candidates to do? Well, it's both earned and given, but it can actually be built within an organization. That's the whole reason that I wrote the book hmm. is because I think you can build organizations that are high trust enterprises, and you do that in a specific way. You build guardrails that keep you on the road yeah. to building high trust. And, and so those are the guardrails are like uh, rules? Are they What are they? Patterns? The, protocols? These are what I call the 10 laws of trust. There you go. And uh, so I, I think if you kind of read the book and look at these things, you say, wow, these, these actually would build a high trust organization if people followed them. And it's – I guess part of the key to this is – you got to want to, right? You got to, this isn't something that just accidentally happens. You have to intentionally say, we are going to be a company of trust. Yeah. And you have to work hard at it. And it's built up a conversation at a time yeah. and can be destroyed with a single act. Oh. So it, it's very hard to build. It's one, kind of one way sticky. Yeah. You know? That's a great way to put it. Yeah. It's one way sticky. Talk about some of those guardrails. Um, because I and I've seen it. I've seen it at Franklin Covey, and I've seen and uh, Stephen M. R. Covey, who wrote the foreword for your book, he's been on the show as well, talking about the speed of trust and the efficiency trust brings. Um, 
But again, it's it's something that you have to make intentional. Yeah, you have to care a lot about it. And uh, I think it starts with your own personal integrity. You know, it's hard to trust somebody who doesn't have personal integrity, where they compartmentalize their lives or where they spin things and they live their life one way privately and another way publicly. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to build trust in that uh, kind of a circumstance. And what what does trust afford us? What does it give us? Well, it allows for innovation. Uh, collaboration. People collaborate in a kind of a seamless way. If you trust somebody, hmm. you don't have you're not you're not checking up all the time. You're yeah. not wary. You don't have double riveted legal agreements. Right. Things go faster, as Stephen uh, will say. Yeah. There's a speed uh, to smart trust, and uh, so a lot of things happen. And you need that efficiency. It seems like to make it in this market. It's because your competitors can can uh, copy your systems. They can steal your people away, but they, I guess they can't copy your culture of trust. It's that if you've earned it, that's a competitive advantage. Exactly, and I'm sure Stephen quoted uh, Peter Drucker yeah. saying that uh, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. It's such a great culture. Quote. Is, it is a great yeah. Quote. From a great man. Yeah. And really did you know Peter? Thing. Did you ever I, get to meet him? I did meet him. In fact, we used to take our partners out to uh, Claremont yeah, to, to uh, be sit trained. at his yeah. feet. He was in his 90s, well into his 90s. Peter Drucker, one of the great kind of organizational behaviorists, one of the great minds in organizational development. Well, beyond that, he was really kind of the father of management, modern management. Yeah, modern management. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. And you got to sit at his feet. What uh, – did you – did you know your entire life business is what you wanted to create? Not at all. How did you fall into being a chairman of so many companies? You know, uh, I, I actually went through BYU. Yeah. And I took the LSAT, what was called the GMAT, or the ATGSB yeah. at the time, which is today the called the GMAT. Okay. Uh, so you were I thinking took, business school or law no, school? No, I was thinking law school, business school. I took the, uh, the GRE, which yeah, is yeah. the graduate records exam. Right. And I just – I took all these tests and uh, and I happened to score really high on this one. So I said, well, maybe that's that's what I should do. do Even when I was there – you actually made a mistake in your intro. You yeah. said I graduated from Stanford Business School. I actually graduated from Harvard Business School. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Is which, that, that's an offense. Yeah, that would make a lot of people – But you, like, were, you teach classes at Stanford. I've taught at Stanford for 25 years. Boy, it was that hard for you to go to Stanford after Harvard? Uh, no, okay. I, I love Stanford. And you fact, live near Stanford. Uh, well, we spent part of the year there. My, I, I sent five kids through Stanford. Did you? But I also sent three through Harvard Business School. Oh, so wow. We have divided loyalties. Yeah, you do. That's yeah. not bad. Yeah. It could be a bigger problem. Yeah. Um, so as you as you figured out you wanted to do business, did you learn – did you know trust? Was, was trust always an important idea for you? Like I wrote a book on relationships because relationships always mattered to me. Has trust always been a big part? Part of your life, it has been a big part of my life, but I didn't realize that it would apply so profoundly to business issues. Uh, I I struggled at the beginning to understand accounting and mm. read balance sheets and figure out how to do deals. I started out in the real estate business, and the job there was to do deals, buy land, yeah. build buildings, lease them up, and so that was really the focus of my energy. And then I realized one day that really to build a great enterprise, you have to have these interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. that are that are that are built on trust. Yeah, and it's um, it's funny because I work with a lot of couples. And once that trust is dissolved, pretty much everything else falls. The understanding, the ability to work together, goal set, growth, development, it all just fades away. It is the foundation. It's very hard to rebuild. Yeah. 
And, and did you, when you think about it, can you go back now that you have the ability of hindsight and think, oh, boy, if I could have this moment again, I probably would have implemented these tools oh, now. Yeah. yeah. But you can't live life no. in reverse. You got to so move forward. You have to move forward and you have to forgive. So everybody, you know, you'll only be betrayed if you trust. Right. If you never trust, you'll never be betrayed. That's true. So uh, I guess you won't grow either. But you really don't grow much and you don't get very much done. You have yeah. to do everything yourself. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to live in an organization, in a family, in a business organization, whatever, you have to learn to trust. You have to build these laws of trust and these guardrails that you sort of follow. I love that. Let's talk about some of the guardrails. Uh, the very first one, and you were you were alluding to it a minute ago, you got to start with integrity, right? So I guess you can't have more trust interpersonally or organizationally than you have integrity personally. And at the top of the organization. Top down. Yeah. It's one of these things that uh, really is driven by the leaders of the enterprise. Now, it could be the leaders of a team or whatever, mm. but the leader really sets the tone. There And so I think it is having this kind of personal integrity, this not compartmentalizing, but it's also delivering on promises. Yeah. You know, if you have integrity, you deliver on promises. You say you're going to do it, you do it. Exactly. There's no gap. Well, how can this be, Joel, if – because our two candidates, one of them is going to win the presidency and then yet they're not trusted by the majority, the great majority of the country, either one of them. Um. It won't be a top-down trust. Yeah, it's going to be very difficult. I think the only way to rebuild trust is to talk to us about things like economic growth, national security, and who they're going to bring into their cabinet. Who, who, who's okay. their management team going to yeah. be? Right now, they're not talking about any of that. They're blasting each other, mm-hmm. which actually further destroys trust, right. not only in the person they're blasting, but in them. And so I think if they would really focus on those three elements that we all care about. Yeah. And and then bar, I guess can you borrow trust? So if they put in a cabinet that we all see as trustworthy, then we, we they're, they're running on other people's trust. Yeah. I think you can borrow a lot of things. In, eventually, they're going to have to rebuild trust mm-hmm. to lead the nation. But I think you can borrow trust just like you can borrow brands. When I'm yeah. starting a company, a lot of times you don't have much of a brand. Yeah. To start with. So you associate with, with others, others who have a great brand yeah. and, and you actually borrow some of what they've earned over the years. But And I guess the end result is you got to get results. So if I promise to get economic growth, then fairly quickly you need to see economic growth or we won't trust you. Yeah. And you need to stay in contact with them. You need to communicate. People need to know what's going on. We're so used to spin now, oh. and, and the internet has yeah. really kind of uh, fueled that whole thing. So most of what you read on the internet, somebody said the other day that it's like a million page, really bad book, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but we're so addicted true. to it. And oh we, yeah. And so people learn not to trust. We learn to be wary about everything. Right. And so I think you have to, yeah, you have to stay in contact with people. So, so integrity is something personally I can do is I cannot promise something I know I can't deliver and I can under promise in order to make sure I am delivering and, and make sure it's legit. And if you're not delivering, if you realize you're going to meet a target, that's not the worst thing in the world as right. long as you're not hiding it. You know, a, a lot of people fail to deliver. Yeah. And so you can fail for reasons of character for reasons of not working at it or for just reasons of 
we live in a dynamic market. You were unable to perform. That last one will forgive. Yeah. And in many cases, that kind of failure is a preamble to success. Right, right. But you, if you learn, right? If you learn. But you got to keep talking to people. You have to let people know. Mm. So if you keep promising something and not deliver, people pretty soon will learn not to trust. Well, and we are a very forgiving society, it seems like. I mean, you can do a lot and – I mean, we saw it with uh, even a President Clinton struggled a lot with certain parts of his life and yet was able to regain a lot of levels of trust. I mean, certain parts we may not have ever trusted him fully in, but we're a forgiving country. Just yeah. deliver. Yeah. And don't overcommit, which I guess is the politician's problem. Yeah. Well, we have, to hope. Than... we have to hope because we're going to have one or the other candidate who will yeah. be in the White House. And we have to hope that they'll understand how to rebuild trust. Yeah. Well, and boy, I hope they do. Another thing you brought up as we talk about the Internet being a big a billion-page book that is just nasty um, <laughs> is we have to invest in respect. It seems like we we don't respect each other like we used to. Yeah, if you ever read some of these pages, uh, blogs and responses, uh-huh. it is outrageous oh. what people say when they're anonymous. Uh-huh. Yeah, when you're behind your closed door sitting there in your robe. Yeah, which says a lot of people don't have a fundamental – profound respect for other human beings Hmm. and points of view. And uh, I think it's very difficult to build a high trust culture where you don't have the kind of respect for others. Well, and but what's so funny about what you're teaching us here? Again, we're speaking with Joel Peterson, author of the book "The Ten Laws of Trust: Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great." Is he's you're also the chairman of JetBlue and other organizations, um, chairman of the board. These some of these principles, Joel, seem so um, so soft, but they you're saying they produce hard results. As well, yeah, I think they're very hard edged. I yeah. think they feel soft because people have a misunderstanding of trust. They think it's this soft, mm-hmm. but oh, I like you, therefore I trust yeah, you. Right? It's really you're looking at is somebody competent? Do they have high character? Yeah. And do they have the authority to deliver? Those three measures. If all three measures are not there, you shouldn't trust them. So trustworthiness, then, in your eyes, is character. Uh, I guess do what you say you're going to do. Exactly. Competency, the know-how. And authority, I guess, the the position, the place, the the right. Yeah, the, the ability to actually yeah. deliver. It's you, know, you may have high character and high competence, but you don't really ha- you're not empowered right. to deliver. There's right. no point in trusting you. It's so interesting, huh? Because when we go to a doctor, if they're not board certified, they may not have the authority be, to be doing certain surgeries or whatever, or they may not be competent at it. Or they, or they may not be able to get into the hospital and have access to the to the, to the operating room. room. Yeah, so you're going to do it in the so back. They may be of their competent. Motor cable, home. Yeah, you're going to do it in the in the back seat of the car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not a good idea. Not a good idea. Let's take a break. Um, we're learning a lot here with Joel C. Peterson in his book, "The Ten Laws of Trust: Building the Bonds That Make a Business Great." Um, wonderful insight from a true expert. Um, sit back, folks. Put on your thinking cap. We'll be back. More learning about trust. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in studio, Joel C. Peterson joins us. And uh, Joel is the current chairman of the board at JetBlue Airways, and he believes that nothing could be further from the truth. You do not have to be a shark 
to be successful in business, what you really need is trust. He wrote the book, The Ten Laws of Trust, Building the Bonds That Make Business a uh, to, That Make a Business Great. Joel, we appreciate you being here with us. It's great to be here, Matt. Five kids, huh? Seven kids. Seven. Five daughters. Five daughters. That's yeah. what I heard. Two sons. Seven kids. And I mean, everything you're teaching would apply to the boardroom, apparently, but also just the the main line at business and also at home. Yeah, I think trust, you know, if your kids don't trust you, if your wife doesn't trust you, you're going to have a hard time having a oh. great home culture. No. then Well, then you have to explain everything. Yeah. Low trust. Cultures pay a high tax. They pay a huge tax. Huge tax. So you talked about ten. Uh, I guess you call them basically. They're 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 like freeway. It's what keeps us in the freeway. Right. We want to we want to make sure that we stay in the game. You've talked about integrity, investing in respect. Talk about uh, your your section on um, empowering everyone. Empowering seems like one of those words that we throw out there. That's kind of you know, fluffy again. It's I'm here to give you the power. How does trust create empowerment? Well, you, if you don't uh, trust somebody, you won't empower them. But you yeah. you have to trust in increments. Yeah. So at some point, you have to give somebody a little bit of power. And what that means is you have to give them responsibility and accountability. They have to know what's being measured. Go. It feels like the opposite of trust when you say, here's what you've right. got to do. Here's the measurement. I'm going to check up on this. But it actually enhances trust. And then as they deliver on that, you can give out more trust and keep empowering people. So that's part of it, I guess, too, is you, you – uh, empowerment with me, I've always thought of the M side of it, the within. The power is already in my 16-year-old to be able to accomplish life, to learn to drive. But I got to get in him enough to figure out how I can help him set the, the rules, the guidelines, the boundaries to succeed and, and eventually res- get his license. Exactly. How to do it responsibly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's – that really is a leadership skill because totally. some aren't going to empower others. They they almost want to they want to you know protect their, their power, keep the power instead of disseminating it, getting it out. Well, there. Well, they think it makes them more powerful if they hoard power, mm. and it's just the opposite. Uh, Stan McChrystal, the four-star general who uh, headed yeah. Afghanistan, is on our board at JetBlue. And we were discussing one time empowering people because he found that he had all these Delta Force, Navy SEALs, yeah. Army Rangers, et cetera. And he found that he had to push power out as deep into the organization as possible. So they were making decisions in the field. Interesting. And, and he said he did it until it hurt. Until huh. it hurt. Yeah. And I think that's really how great organizations develop high trust. You know, if they're accountable, if they deal with breaches, uh, they can continue to push power out into the organization. That seems like a great way to know if you are if you're trusting enough people is if it hurts. I mean, because it should be just as hurtful or potentially harmful that these Delta forces could act that and General McChrystal has to respond if they blow it. There, yeah. So it, cre- it demands this mutual trust that I know you're skilled enough, you've proven it, and I'll give you enough power to make me hang. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that – I mean that's a great way to say it, mutual trust. Yeah. And I think that's when trust is really its most powerful, when it is interdependent, 
when it's reciprocal. Yeah. And those are the most powerful partnerships. Those are the most powerful marriages. The most powerful businesses are where there's reciprocal trust. It's like people being belayed on a cliff. Right. You know, they basically are roped together. Yeah. Their survival depends on each other. When you develop that level of trust, you can do things that you could not even think of. Otherwise. And you're not saying you just give them that. You're saying you hold them accountable. Absolutely. You set some guidelines. You let them live up to a level. And then you can elevate the level and we elevate the responsibility. Exactly. I think if you have a project in a business, you have a budget, you have a timetable, you have specific deliverables, and then whoever is the champion of that budget then gets measured against those things. Yeah. And that is a measure of trust. It's not the opposite. You just say, go build a building right. uh, and I'll trust you to do it. it. That isn't trust. You've got to have these other measures. To have really- and, and I guess there is – then there's the accountability, but the accountability – just becomes a validation of trust, really. Like, yeah. yeah, you did it. It proves it up and then it allows you to then trust more the next time. Uh-huh. So you build on If you think about it, you're building it a layer at a time, a molecule at a time, a conversation at a time, a delivered project at a time, hmm. you're building trust with that party. Do you sense in corporate America, in the business world, is is trust going up? Is trust going down? Where are we in the trust factor of of our leaders. It seems like a lot of institutions we don't trust anymore. It seems like a lot of businesses we don't trust. Yeah, we've lost trust in a lot of people, in a lot of leaders, in a lot of businesses. Uh, but I don't think you can generalize. I yeah. think there are some that are just wonderful organizations that are very high trust. You could turn your life over to them. Right. I think uh, just as most doctors, you know, you'd say you could really trust, and we do trust our rights to doctors. Every once in a while, you'll find one that doesn't have a degree or is doing something outside of the bounds, but that that shouldn't tar everybody. Right? They get a lot of press. Writing a letter for Donald Trump that seemed a little (laughs) weird. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But it's like I guess that's the key, isn't it? It's a it's a personal thing. Trust is. And I could have it with a company, right? So if a company harmed me, if a company did something, they didn't treat me right as a customer, I might not trust the company, but it's probably really an employee Probably I is. don't trust. Although the company, uh, if or it learns policy. about it, should step in. Yeah. You know, companies correct those things. You know, at JetBlue, we left people stranded on the tarmac. About, I remember that. Yeah, what a everybody great story. remembers that. Yeah. Unfortunately, we've tried to <laughs> make everybody forget. Right. But basically, David Neeleman, our founder and CEO, yeah. is one of the wonderful mm-hmm. human beings and great entrepreneurs in the airline industry. He basically came up with a bill of rights. For customers, it wasn't the government that came in and made him do it. He just he apologized, yeah, and he came up with this customer bill. But of Joel, wasn't that just a big PR move? Heck, no, no, that was I, I know uh, I know Neeleman's family, and no, that was probably his mother <laughs> or his father saying no, it was him. It may have been but, that their like, voices in you, his ear. That's right. But, you uh, treat people David. right. Yeah, how powerful. Well, uh, I mean, I guess again, that's the top down model. Yeah. Another point you bring up about trust is you got to keep everyone informed. I think this is vital. I think it's very hard to have a tr- yeah. high trust organization if you're hiding things. Mm-hmm. So what that means to me is you have to tell good news and bad news. Yeah. You have to talk before, during, and after events. A lot of times people just deal with the event and they try to spackle yeah. over it. La, la, la. And keep that going. actually destroys trust. Yeah. So, so true. Yeah, if it's you'll so let people true. know that here's a bad thing that happened, here's how we're dealing with it. By the way, here's how we dealt with it. Uh, that actually builds trust. So bad events are not necessarily trust-destroying. Well, and again, if I don't trust you, then I won't tell you. Yeah. So if you're not getting a lot of information, 
it might be that people around you don't trust you. Yeah, they know to hold their cards close to the vest. Interesting, because we we also see that with the candidates as well. We're not we don't seem to be getting the whole story of. <laughs> Any part of their life, of any part of their privacy, of any part of their health, of any part of anything. Yeah. And I mean, I guess when you're you're in that position, it makes sense. If you don't trust the press, if you don't trust the right wing conspiracies, you probably aren't going to give as much. No. No, how do right. you how do we as um, a general like population trust a leader? Um, is there stuff we can do? To, to help our ability to trust somebody enough to elect them? Well, uh, you know, I've often wondered. I've actually talked to several candidates in the past. Uh, yeah, they need to have you on board. Well, I, I've talked to them about, you know, not do, using all this negative messaging. Yeah. And the problem is they say that every single political consultant says that the negative messaging is all that scores points. Uh, Positive messaging or neutral messaging scores no points at all. So I think in this uh, media-driven sort of gossip hive we live in, bad news gets the front page. Right. Because it it resonates. It it takes care of our fear. Once we've got the fear taken care of, then we'll – Go to the hope. Well, it's it's very power. Fear is very powerful. Force yeah. and fear are extraordinarily oh. powerful in the short run, mm-hmm. as is reward. Right. And if you really want to start relying on things like duty and love, those are much show, they're much more powerful. Yeah. They're much stickier, but they take a lot of time to time. build up. But they also give you huge advantage long term. Yeah. So it, you, I guess as a leader, that's what everyone has to decide: is am I willing to to build the long term you know, kind of not the softer skills, but really, they're really the more human skills. Yeah. And I think in our uh, financial markets, we're measured by quarterly results, yeah. which doesn't encourage people mm-hmm. to think about the long term. Right. It's interesting. In today's market, there are a lot of companies that are not going public. They're staying private. In fact, there's 148 really? what we call billion dollar companies that would normally right. would have gone public a long right time now, ago. And they're not out. doing it. They're just doing it. They're staying private. Part and, of that's due to regulations. Yeah, why? I guess they can then run it any way they need to without as much disclosure. Well, they don't have as much oversight, as much regulation, mm-hmm. as much government intervention. So consequently, they they feel more empowered and they can raise the capital privately. Huh. There's debt capital available. Yeah. and uh, But the problem with that is it actually exacerbates the income differential because uh, pension funds cannot invest in private. They have to that's invest right. in public share. So we're actually doing the opposite of what politicians we're, say they want to do. We're harming ourselves. Yeah, inadvertently. So I yeah. think not understanding second and third order consequences is another way to destroy trust. Mm-hmm. Inadvertently, yeah. maybe naively and or innocently, but it's every bit as trust destroying. Well, and it's because we hear so much about Wall Street, the corrupt Wall Street. And I mean, it might make sense why no one wants to go there. No yeah. one wants to play. And I've dealt with Wall Street for 44 years. Yeah. And, as uh, an executive. Too. As an executive. I borrowed money from them. I worked with them. And it, truly, greed does drive a whole lot of what happens there. But there's a lot of high character individuals where their word is their bond. Uh, really good professionals there. Mm. So I think we tend to tar people with a brush. Yeah. We have a media totally. kind of a look at things that uh, isn't very accurate. Well, and especially today, in just in the election culture, it's just 
anything can be. Yeah, we've got two months to get this thing done, and every, anyone will say anything. It seems like right now. Well, and they've learned to talk in 140 characters. <laughs> so, that. so we're making policy in 140 characters. So true. So true. Well, we appreciate you coming to see us, Joel. Again, go check out the book Ten Laws of Trust: Building the Bonds or That uh, Make a Business Great. Building the Bonds That Make a Gr- Business Great. Joel Peterson's his name, folks. You're not going to want to miss out on this one. A great example, I think, to all of us that you can you can build business, but you can also build trust as you do it. Joel, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Matt. We'll take a break, folks. Come back. Continue the discussion. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I hope you've uh, all had a great morning so far. But if not, we have something that might make it a little better. Have you ever met someone who just always seems to be happy? Why does it seem that there are people in this world that are happier than the rest of us? You might be asking, what did they have for breakfast? Well, guess what? Our producer, Leanna Tan, is going to share five ways happy people start their mornings. You know... I consider myself a nightlife person. I love going to dinners, parties, dances, concerts, and having late night talks. I love the nightlife. I've got to forget. But I was thinking about it, and there's something about the mornings that you just can't beat. There's something about opening your eyes in the morning and knowing that the sun is only going to get brighter from there. I read this article on PickTheBrain.com called Six Ways Happy People Start Their Mornings. Pretty interesting stuff. Here it is. It says that happy people, one, think of each day as a new beginning instead of reviewing the mistakes of yesterday. Morning, Truman. Morning, Spencer. Two, remind themselves of what things they have to look forward to and focus on those. You're taking us to Bermuda? Oh, boy. Three, make time to ease into the day and relax into their mornings so that their mind and body have a chance to fully awaken. Breathe. Okay, got that one down. Four, they spend a few moments with something beautiful, like birds or plants. By the time you reach the bottom, you're surrounded by flowers. Every day, new flowers open. Five, they put a positive focus to the day ahead, thinking of each day as an opportunity to do good and to make positive changes. Change. You got change. And number six, they give thanks in some way. Wow, that was pretty powerful. After reading this, I felt inspired. I'm a pretty happy person, and my mornings usually turn out pretty great. They're great! So, I figured I'd share with you guys some ways that I start my mornings. You know, just to ensure that I'm giving you all the quality advice I can. So, here are five tips to help you keep your mornings healthy and happy. What? Use the pretty morning blossom ringtone as your alarm instead of being jolted awake by those jarring bleeps. No one likes being woken up by ugly noises. Two! Wear your running shorts to bed so you have no excuse not to leave the house in the morning. Running, running, and running, running, and running. We all know it's hard enough getting yourself to exercise in the morning. If changing into your running shorts is one more step you have to do first thing, it kills any motivation you had to leave your bed in the first place. Three! Blast 90s music in the shower. Motivating? Uplifting? Plus, I'm sure your family or roommates will think it's a much more entertaining alternative to an alarm clock. After washing up, just stand in the shower under the hot water and contemplate your existence until someone knocks on the door. 
You know what they say. All the answers to life's deepest questions come when you're standing in the bathtub. Have a secret stash of Cheez-Its in your cupboard. 100% real cheese taste explosion. Cheesy. Sounds bizarre, but you know you're secretly craving it. Since when did a bowl of cornflakes leave anyone feeling satisfied? I'm sorry, but I don't think granola bars or Pop-Tarts will ever bring you true happiness. Well, there you have it. Pick the Brain says, Happiness is often a matter of focus. It's about bringing into perspective all the things you have going well, the things we often neglect or fail to realize as true gifts. Happy people see the morning sun as a reminder to all those things we so easily forget, the things that make our lives so wonderful. So tomorrow, when you wake up in your running shorts to the sound of morning blossoms, don't dread the coming workday. Instead, remember you have so much to look forward to, like Britney Spears, a therapy session with yourself under hot water, and a large handful of delicious, cheesy, baked cracker snacks. Well, I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Hour number three of the program, which means, of course, we are locked and loaded. Happy days to you all. Happy Tuesday. Is it Tuesday? Man, what's happened to my week? It's one day's gone. I think you're okay. No, I was uh, writing all night last night. I'm, I'm in a writing mode. Mm. Mm. What does that mean? Uh, it means I showed up at my office and somebody had put 12 donuts. And so I decided, hey, if I got donuts, I could write. Okay. I just started Any cronuts? No cronuts. So it. when you're in a writing mood, does, does your uh, level of verbiage go up does it raise to a higher level or does it drop to more like the fourth grade level drops to about the second grade level okay interesting it's uh it's hard if you're going to write a lot you got to lower your your bar Mm. you know just what you do is this that book you're never going to finish no this is something else this is just a presentation i'm writing that i've just got to write okay (laughs) right 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 not to bore you all is it uh clever and witty Yes. Mm. Clever and witty. Like, by the way, and we are celebrating his life today, Gene Wilder passed away. 83 years old. One of the greatest. My blanket! My blue blanket! Give me my blue blanket! I read today that he's one of the comedians that was able to perfect... Looking as if you're on the edge of a yeah. manic break uh-huh. and not actually going there. He he helped us understand anxiety. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because in a lot of his roles, he was the anxious per- personified. By the way, Oscar-nominated performance. That one was. That screaming, my blanket, my blanket, putting on the Ritz. And that's the one actually that Mel Brooks did win an Oscar for, for best original screenplay. Really? For the producers. Look at you. You're just like your own little Wikipedia. Jeffopedia, we're going to start calling you. He died at 83 of um, conditions uh, related to Alzheimer's. 
and yet in a beautiful way was still able to recognize his family, be connected to his family, even though, yeah, that disease, that issue, oh, we got to figure that out, folks. Um, again, Gene Wilder, he's done so much. I'll never forget uh, Blazing Saddles, one of the first shows I watched on TV, the clean, healthy, edited version. And um, I was like, really? As yeah. a kid? Wow. Well, but it was on TV. Oh, right, so, right. So, you know, they cleaned They cut it all up. the fun out. They cut all the fun out. But we got a great show for you. More uh, Gene Wilder ahead, of course, plus some other headlines, some that you might not always think about or know about. Today also is Slinky Day, and some people don't know that Slinky, before Slinky was Slinky, there was another game that uh, I think had existed since the beginning of time called Log. What rolls downstairs, a motor and pairs, rolls over your neighbor's dog. What's great for a snack and fits on your back, it's Log, Log, Log. It's Log, Log. It's big, it's heavy, it's wood. It's Log, Log. It's better than that, it's good. Everyone wants a Log. Blammo! Apparently they stole the Slinky song from Log. Is that Ren and Stimpy? Um, I admit nothing. Okay. That's Simple the Pleasures. Song. Simple Pleasures. Oh, that's a great song, too. We're um, going to go out and play with a stick. It's not a stick. It's a log. It's a big stick. Everyone loves a log. It's good for a snack. That's right, and it'll roll over your dog. Be careful. It's a log. So uh, it's Slinky Day. It's also Toasted Marshmallow Day. Here's the deal. We, we've we got some interesting uh, guests coming up. Of course, Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us, also known as the Health Evangelist or the Health Admonisher. Mm. He will be on the show today talking about tobacco, tobacco and all of its sorts and the impact it has on your life. Um, pretty awesome insight, for I think, for all of us. It's more than just... Um, it's more than just smoking today, too. There's so many different ways to get tobacco right. into you. So we'll be getting to that. Also, of course, uh, our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation, they'll be up on the program. And, of course, the hero of the day. But first, let's get to Caitlin Thomas for the headlines. Caitlin? Donald Trump on Monday commended Huma Ebedine for choosing to leave her husband, former New York Congressman Anthony Weiner. And given Ebedine is a top aide to Hillary Clinton, Trump also used the opportunity to slam a longtime enemy. Huma is making a very wise decision, Trump said. I know I know Anthony well, and she will be far better off without him. He then added, I only worry for the country and that Hillary Clinton was careless and negligent in allowing him to have such close proximity to highly classified information. A truck carrying Takata airbag parts and explosives crashed in Texas last week, exploding and killing a woman and injuring four others. Authorities say the truck caught fire outside Lucila Robles' home, then violently exploded after the two drivers were able to escape. Both drivers were injured, along with a couple in a nearby car. Ten other homes were damaged, while debris was found as far as a mile away. And lastly, Matt, this is a fun one for you. What? A group of astronomers says a radio telescope in Russia has detected a strong signal of life in a star system about 95 light years from Earth. What? Spurring talk of extraterrestrial beings. This signal, which was detected last year, has only now been made public. The signal came from a solar system centered on a star a few billion years older than the sun. 
Wow. So although experts say the signal is not definitive proof of extraterrestrial life, it certainly got astronomers talking. Yeah. Aliens. <gasps> this is exciting. Wow. Alien. <laughs> Thanks. Maybe Welcome. they're listening to the – maybe that's what happened to the show. Aliens. Aliens done infiltrated our board. I think there's a better chance that Russian hackers got into the system than aliens affected the show. I think there's a better shot there. Yeah. Russian hackers. But don't call them illegal aliens. I didn't say that. That's a great point, too. I didn't think of the Russian angle. The Russian angle. The Russians have been after everybody. We've had several different topics about Russia. They haven't been very pro-Russia, I would say. So, uh, yeah, so we could be a target. What do you do? What do you do if, uh, you know, to make sure our board is no longer attacked by aliens from another galaxy mm. or Russians? I mean, we were, we were having, I guess Jeff just has to start, he has to stay here all night now. Yeah, make sure no Russians walk in here. Yeah. Or any Russian sympathizers, because you know they're out there too. Yeah. It's a really important <laughs> message to everybody. Hey, did you hear this story about carjackers? This, this uh, I don't know why this reminds me of Benny Hill for some reason, but mm. it does. A couple of would-be carjackers are all wet after an encounter at the Shreveport car wash when a man who refused to become oh. a victim, Michael Davis, says he was washing his car around 2 a.m. Mm. Wednesday. When he was approached you know, by a man do. pointing a gun directly at him, demanding his keys and his money, he said, give me your keys and your money. And I said, what'd you say? What'd you say? What'd you say? Guess what happened? I then took the sprayer and just sprayed him right in the face. Hmm. Recalled Michael Davis. Moments later, another man comes into view, appearing to attempt to grab the hose. Davis doesn't let up, spraying the second man with the hose before swinging the wand at him. The man can be seen trying one more time to grab at the wand before also fleeing out of the frame. Through it all, Davis never backs down, even smiling at one point during an encounter that would be terrifying for most people. There we go. Live audio. That apparently is Michael Davis giving the Nelson ha ha. That's pretty good. The security cameras in most buildings don't have audio i know and you would think maybe a car right. wash wouldn't put that no. kind of money we, into a security system but that's great we tracked it down yeah it's uh that's the great work of jeff simpson who has to track down all of the audio mm. great great moment if you're going to have somebody draw a gun on you you draw your car wash sprayer well it was handy yeah if he had the, the foaming brush he may have used the foaming brush may have been a different thing <laughs> may not have gotten away with it that's dangerous. I don't know that I would spray a guy with a gun. Why not? That'd be fun. The guy's got a gun. What's this he going to do? He can't see. He's not using a Darth Vader noodle to... Yeah, it was spur of the moment, definitely. He wasn't like thinking, wait a second, let's do the smart thing and spray him with a gun. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. You'd probably want to drop the gun and back You'd away. and Probably just give him your keys. He's lucky he didn't have that uh, tire cleaner. Have you ever seen those in the car washes? Yeah. They have the little spray. Those don't go that far. No. They just hit your tire... I've been disappointed in the tire sprayers at yeah. my car wash. Seems like a needless, seems needless like a, option. Seems like a bait and switch, mm. quite honestly. 
the whole thing is a bait and switch. Anything else going on in the headlines we need to pay attention to? Bar of soap. Do you use a bar of soap? Only when I wash my car. Only when you wash your car. Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 are largely snubbing the old-fashioned bar of soap. Really? Leading to sales declines for the likes of Ivory's iconic 125-year-old bar and its bar soap rivals, according to new data that's out. Wow. Well, are they using these all the body washes now? Yes. And the it's loofah? liquid soaps. It's body washes. They're saying consumers who still buy bars of soap it turns out, have something in common. They tend to be over 60 years old and are men. The old 60-year-old man Uh, trick. And me. I bet you buy that Irish Spring. No, I buy, like, Dove or something. Do you remember the Irish Spring commercial where the guy would grab the uh, bar of soap and with his knife he would cut it? Yes. And he'd go, mmm, smell the freshness. Ah. (laughs) Why why does the guy have a knife in the shower? He's Irish. Oh, is that what the Irish do? I think, I think that's a, that's a typical thing. That's what they're trying to say, I guess. I have a little Irish in me. And do you have I, a knife? I've never you cut know. my bar of soap. You never know when you need to whittle a bar of soap. Or the Black Angus commercial when the guy would shave with his knife. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, I do that every morning. So it says sales of soap, bath, and shower products are on the rise with overall market growth of 2.7% last year. Sales of bar of soaps, though, slipped 2.2% from 2014 to 2015. Come on, people. Younger consumers and women snubbed the traditional bar in favor of liquid soap. So what's driving the generational shift? Millennials believe bar of soaps are covered in germs after they're used. No, just hair. (laughs) Yeah. Just hair. Some older Americans might scoff at that belief, and there's some research to back them up. A 1988 study found that people who washed with bars of soap uh, they contaminated with bacteria didn't have a detectable level of the bacteria on their hands. So just because there's bacteria on the bar of soap, it doesn't transfer. Yeah. It's soap. It's not like you're, like, breeding bacteria. So, so they really that's the thought of behind it. I I've never I I need to think more when I'm in the shower. So it says about 60% of Americans over the age 65 believe it's fine to wash their face with a bar of soap compared with only 33% of people between the ages of 25 and 34. Hmm. Okay. So that right there qualifies as news you may not have needed but you got anyways. Yeah, and you got it for free. So no. you know, get off our backs. <laughs> Just go wash your face with your we soap. we got some market research on the bar of soap. That's good. And now all of us will start using soap. Hint, hint to everybody. <laughs> Send out the memo. All right, Terry, thanks. Hey, good work. Just here to help. You're here to help. Uh, also, more help is coming, folks. Tobacco kills, according to our next guest. Dr. Ron Hager will be joining us. He's the health admonisher. Today we'll be uh, dissecting tobacco and the impact of tobacco on your health. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio with us, Dr. Ron Hager, an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at Brigham Young University. He is uh, he's an expert in chronic disease prevention, which is why we call him the health admonisher. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. The health evangelist. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I, guess, I guess that's me. You're going to make us healthy one way or another. Yeah, I, I'm going to try. You know, 
I, I guess I really can't make anybody do anything. Well, right? you try. But I try. <laughs> I try. And I've been thinking lately, because every time I come in, we're always, seems like we're talking about some kind of issue related to a chronic disease. Yeah. We've talked about the leading killers in civilized nations, including our own, like heart disease and stroke and cancer, and some others we've talked about. Um, but I wonder how many people ask, you know, uh, of course, you know, the question is, uh, you know, what what kills everybody? Right. And, and you could say, well, heart disease is number one. But who asks the next obvious question, well, what's causing so much heart disease huh. or what's causing so much cancer? Yeah. So I call that the actual leading causes of death as opposed to just the leading cause of oh, death. Oh, because we talk about the like we talk about the type of death. Right. Instead of what causes the type of death. Exactly. But that's that I mean that's the common sense question it's to true. ask, isn't it? Is uh you know, I I mean if you have a headache, you take an aspirin. Right. And, and if your headache goes away, you probably don't conclude that the cause of your headache was a lack of aspirin. Right. <laughs> Right. But, right. But that's kind of the mentality that some people fall into. But what you really should be asking is, you know, I'm really glad my headache's gone and aspirin can help, but what actually caused the headache? Interesting. And it wasn't the aspirin, right? Yeah. So, so as I got thinking about that, I, 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 I remembered reading, uh, you know, over the, the last few years, uh, different efforts, uh, both uh, nationwide at a federal level and even at community levels, uh, you know, uh, politicians, uh, everything from mayors and governors all the way up to, you know, the FDA trying to regulate right. things. And I'm and I'm not a big fan of, you know... Bringing the government in. Yeah, you know, government oversight and regulation. Um, but there have been some recent efforts following on the heels of, uh, you know, governments in other countries. Uh, some recent efforts by the FDA, for example, to eliminate trans fat from the food supply. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, you can uh, you can you can legislate that. You can make a law, and you can say that you know, commercially produced foods cannot contain trans fat. And right. you know, and the reality is that that's probably a good thing, right? I mean, it'd be nice if everybody would just exercise their their agency, <laughs> right. I suppose, and make the right choices. Because really, it's 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 consumers that drive the production of product, right? But you know, but the government can have a role in that. And and then, like I said, at other levels, you know, uh, mayors of cities, governors of states, you know, they've said, you know, we're going to limit the size of soda that can be sold in a restaurant, for example. And, of course, all of this is an effort, you know, supposedly to help people, uh, you know, consume things, uh, you know, in proper amounts or not consume things, like in the case of trans fat, that aren't good for you. Um but I got I got thinking about, you know, if the government really wanted to regulate something, if they really wanted to make a law for something, uh, why why don't they take a look at tobacco? Yeah, I mean, it seems for, like kind of a no brainer, yeah, right? Yeah, for example, um, in the now, now this is worldwide, uh, and there are some areas of the world where tobacco, uh, you know, use is is you know really really bad, right? It it has been bad in the United States, but it, the you know the numbers have come way down over the years. But in the twentieth century, tobacco caused a hundred million deaths. In the twenty, are you serious? Uh, so so in a hundred years, a hundred million deaths. And researchers are saying, experts are saying that if that if the trend continues, tobacco use uh, may cause one billion deaths. 
in the 21st century. Wow. So, you know, I mean, if you wanted to, you know, really flex your muscle, you know, your, your, your political uh, and legislative oversight, why not tobacco? Work on the big issue. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, yeah, like a billion deaths. Yeah. In a hundred years? Well, I know, but see, then we'd lose all that money. <laughs> yeah. So, That's... so so actually look that up, oh. uh, you know, spend a little bit of time uh, on that, trying to figure out, you know, uh, you know, a- asking some of these kinds of questions. Um, what percentage of kids in the U.S. are using tobacco? And, and that's a good question. And adults, I guess. Yeah. Um, high school students uh, who are current smokers, about 18% or about 3.4 million Eighteen percent of current high school smo- uh, kids are smoking. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's also you know other types of uses of tobacco like smokeless tobacco. Um, that's about thirteen percent of high school males um, chewing but, tobacco. Yeah, it's obviously kind of a guy thing. Uh, girls do it, but just over two percent. Hmm. Kids under eighteen who try smoking for the first time each day yeah. in the United hmm. States thirty five hundred. 3,500 kids a day. Yeah, under 18. Um, kids under 18 who become new, regular, daily smokers each day, about 1,000. Wow. Yeah, so uh. you know, so, so there's definitely something you know, that still needs to be worked on, even though a lot of progress has been made in, in the United States and other developed countries. Uh, but but you know, why is it still uh, so, so prevalent? Um, in, in the U.S., annual spending... On marketing tobacco products, so these are the manufacturers, right. $8.8 billion annually. A year. Yeah, that's $24 million a day spent advertising and marketing tobacco products. Wow. And, and each year in the United States, kids, so this is under 18, consume 800 million packs of cigarettes. That's about, oh my heavens. about $2 billion per year in sales revenue. So what kind of a company spends... $8 billion or more on marketing? Well, a company who's making a lot more than that, obviously. Right. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned the money. You know, if you follow the money, um, tobacco industry expenditures for lobbying Congress, this was in 2010, almost $17 million. $17 million to keep Congress not messing with any laws. Yeah. Just making it easier to market. Yeah. So it it, it really is about the money. But I'd like to, um, so you know, overall, twenty percent of the population still smokes, roughly. Yeah, yeah, about yeah, maybe a little more than that of the adult population. Yeah, mm. and and but in some countries, uh, yeah, China, a- and Asian others. countries, uh, Russia, uh, some other of the you know the former uh, uh, Eastern Bloc countries and and uh, and some Scandinavian countries, uh, it 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 can be very high. You know, the wow. percentage of people and and. And I think a lot of times, too, there's an underestimation of uh, the importance of the example. So if you're around, especially as a, a youth or a child, if you're around people that smoke, uh, now this is just you know uh, from some of the research data, but if you're under 12 years old and you've been exposed to a, a one parent who smokes, mm-hmm. you're 360 times more likely to become a smoker yourself in your adult life. Wow. So it's almost... The question isn't, you know, how does a person start smoking? It's like if you're around it, the question is more, how does a person not start smoking? Yeah, how would you avoid that? Yeah, because 360 times 
It's more more likely. Right. That's pretty much a guarantee. Well, and if all your friends are doing it, everyone in the neighborhood's doing it. Yeah. Huh. yeah. So, uh, uh, so what I'd like to do is, um, you know, talk about some of the the. I mean, we've talked about the death, right? But, right. But there are other there are other issues because this is a personal thing as well. If if you're a, if a person is a smoker, or if you're a person who knows someone who smokes, uh, it's it, there's an impact, right? I mean. I have known a lot of people who smoke, and I'm confident that not a single one of them didn't know that smoke they, that 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 tobacco kills or that it's bad for you. Yeah, they know. So why can't they stop? Is it just addiction? Is that is 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 it feeding something for them? You know, yeah, the hand to mouth kind of thing. Yeah. Well, there. I mean, there are there are actual you know chemical biochemical addiction. I mean, nicotine, for example, right. is is a is a highly addict one of the most addictive substances known. Wow. Um, and but you know that can actually clear your system fairly quickly. Uh, but then there's also you know that that behavioral aspect, mm-hmm. the whole psychology of it all uh, that you mentioned, kind of the hand to mouth sort of thing. And, and you know I know know of people who have tried to quit smoking and they and and they have difficulty overcoming just that pattern. Yeah. And so they put other things in their mouth, you know. Cheetos, or, uh, Cheetos that's what or, I've been doing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, carrot sticks or <laughs> suckers or something like that. Let's let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Ron Hager who is our health evangel- evangelist, but really he's here to help us live longer and you're saying in the end, look, if government were ever going to step in and control something, we may as well control or get rid of something like tobacco it's pernicious it really doesn't have a it's it's a it's it's a business that's killing us literally yeah we'll take a break come back continue the discussion uh maybe get some ideas on what else we could do to break some of the habit understand it a little bit better here to inform you folks help you live longer and stronger this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us in the studio today, Dr. Ron Hager. He's an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences here at Brigham Young University and is an expert in uh, chronic disease prevention. Today he's teaching us smoking, tobacco, really, uh, in whichever form you ingest it or get it into your system. Tobacco, it doesn't do a body good. No. No, it doesn't. Um, you know, and as I was looking into this, kind of what, uh, you know, spurred my, uh, you know, my, my interest, or at least, you know, to, br- to bring this to the show today, um, I get a, a, a journal uh, in my office uh, called the American Journal of Health Promotion. And some, some time ago, I was, I was looking at one of the issues, past issues uh, the other day, and re- was reminded uh, of, a, of a, an editorial that the editor-in-chief, Michael O'Donnell, wrote shortly after his brother, his younger brother, died from mm. lung cancer. And so he wrote a little piece, uh, and it was called um, Tobacco Killed My Little Brother. Mm. Uh, you know, so it's, it, you know, it's a pretty potent message. So his little brother uh, 
died at age 52 from lung cancer. He died only three months after the diagnosis. Oh, wow. So um, lung cancer, by the way, is, is the most lethal of all the cancers. It's not the most common cancer. Uh, you know, in men, that might be something like prostate cancer, but, uh, but it... It's but, the most deadly. But it's the most deadly. Almost everybody that gets lung cancer dies from it in a fairly short period of time. And, uh, you know, I mentioned some questions earlier, and, and Michael O'Donnell, the, the, the editor-in-chief of this journal who wrote this editorial, said he asked himself some questions, you know, because a family member had just died. Right. And, you know, he, he said he wondered how could Neil have started smoking. Neil was his brother. And, and he said, well, you know, and then another question, well, well why didn't he stop? Hmm. Because... You know, as I mentioned just a few minutes ago, people know, right? I mean, it's you, you don't you don't tell somebody who's smoking, hey, you probably don't know this, but that's bad for you, and then they have this look of shock on their face, yeah, like, oh what? my gosh, I never really yeah. knew that. You know, they do know, um, but it's still too difficult to overcome. And and so he asked the question, why didn't he stop? And then, of course, he asked the question, how could it have killed him? Uh, you know, and these are questions anybody would ask themselves if somebody mm-hmm. they they knew and loved had died from lung cancer due to smoking. But then he, he realized that, you know, what probably would have been more surprising is if Neil had not started to smoke and if he actually had been able to quit um, and if smoking didn't kill him. Because it's, it is it is that much of a cause and effect relationship. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very powerful. Um, so both of, both of Neil's parents smoked. And as I mentioned, so he falls into that statistic. Yeah, 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 and he also had an older brother who smoked. And interestingly, um, uh, it was about a year later, I think, uh, there was another editorial in this journal, and it was titled "Now Smoking Has Killed My Older Brother." Oh. And so his younger brother and his older brother died. And and um, now now his mother quit when he was ten years old, and his father quit when he was fifteen. So they were both able to quit, uh, but Neil uh, was was not able to quit. He tried a couple of times. One time at age thirty five. Uh, he saw a doctor and had some x-rays, and the doctor said he had spots on his lungs. And that was scary. that was pretty motivating. That right. was scary. So he was able to quit um, uh, because the doctor said, if you don't, you'll be dead by the time you're 50. Right. But the, the, the addiction, uh, the pattern, uh, the, the, the social aspect, whatever it is, was so strong that he couldn't stay away from it. So he started smoking again, and he quit another time when his wife complained about it and you know, said, I want you to be around. So the doctor's prediction wasn't too far off. You know, he died at 52. The doctor said he'd be dead by 50. Um, so it is it is a difficult habit to break. Most people, now I'm not saying everybody, because I've known people who have just been able to quit cold turkey and never go back to it. But most people need some kind of help. Yeah, how do you and, quit? I guess a, a patch, a, the gum? Yeah, yeah so those are, those are things. Uh, there are medications. I guess uh, it depends why you're smoking. Like, yeah. Is it the oral fix fixation you need yeah. or have? Yeah, and... Uh, and, and there are behavioral strategies as well. So there are, uh, you know, people with expertise in mm-hmm. helping people overcome, you know, behaviors or change patterns in their life. Uh, so either some kind of uh, uh, counseling uh, help, some kind of, med- you know, medicinal help. Uh, there are a variety of ways to do it. Now, to be fair, one of the things that has happened that has been helpful is the tax that has been placed on yeah. tobacco products. I mean, you just about have to mortgage, you know, get a second mortgage on your house if you're a smoker just to support your habit because the taxes are so high. So, you know, I, I feel like that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it all goes back to this idea of, you know, how much of this is, you know, should you be free to choose and how much of it should be regulated? 
you know, because it's not against the law to drink Drano. Right. You know, but, but that would also kill you. Right. You know. Yeah, but uh, if, if we had 20 percent of our population drinking Drano, we'd probably be having different discussions maybe, today. Maybe so. And, uh, maybe know, not if they're making enough money. And when it. you think about it from that perspective, Matt, I've, I've kind of concluded that, uh, you know, not, not entirely, but to a great extent, uh, tobacco use or especially cigarette smoking – it's it's one of if not the only thing I know of that when it's you you do it according to the directions or you know mm. you do it according to the prescription uh, it kills you. It's yeah. It's yeah. it's designed to it, it, effectively it, enter your lungs, which will effectively over time. Right, and then kill there's you. then there's also the person you know or you know many people who say, well, it's it's my business, it's my life. Right. You know, if it kills me, it kills me. So what? But none of us are you know in this. Uh, all by ourselves, right. you know. We're we're part of a of a of. I mean, at the very least, you know, very small local communities. But even on a world perspective, we're all kind of in this together. Yeah. And and if you wanted to talk dollars and cents, because you know, maybe people relate to that, but uh, you know, healthcare costs, health insurance premiums right. can be affected by smokers. So even though I don't smoke, I still Pay. have have a stake in the game. Right, um, and and you lose a fifty-two-year-old man that has so much to offer the community, you know, and his yeah. family, and you know, all of just th- those costs as well. Yeah, and you know, we we put a lot of effort, you know, into you know helping people, uh, you know, through through laws and through legislation. I mean, you know, we have laws about seatbelt use, right? Yeah, right. Uh, we have um, you know all, all kinds of things like this that. Uh, are designed to help us. So why is it more being done to design to help us with regard to tobacco? Tobacco kills more than 400,000 people in the U.S. every year. Wow. That's 10 times more than all the people in the United States who die from car crashes. Oh, my heavens. Yet we see ad campaigns right here yeah. in Utah. You know, Publicizing for, it. You know, for, for, for car crashes and stuff, you know, zero fatalities, a statistic we can live with. You've seen those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, We're going to have to uh, have you back, too, and talk about the vaping side of this. Yeah, yeah, I'd like to lead into that sometime. Because vaping is – people think it's a kinder, gentler, you know, method of getting the drug in, but vaping has its issues as well. So let's – well, Dr. Ron, we appreciate you. Again, you are the great health (laughs) admonisher. Admonisher, yes. Uh, I think uh, all of us have agreed that we're not going to start smoking. Okay, I, I don't think I will either. Thank okay. you. So we're all we're all going to pledge. We're all on the same page. <laughs> Good. Good stuff, Dr. Ron Hager from the uh, Department of Exercise Sciences in the College of Life Sciences at Brigham Young University. We'll take a break. Visit our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer. Let's mix where Rockefellers walk with sticks or umbrellas in their midst. <laughs> Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little tribute to Gene Wilder as we throw it down to two of our uh, Gene Wilder wannabes, Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. Hello, gentlemen. If I could ever be mentioned in the same sentence as that man, then I would have succeeded... Uh. In my professional life. You just were. You just were. 
You've succeeded. You did it. You did it. Don't <sighs> you made it. Big Lee. Not really. Isn't though. he neat, though? Seriously. Oh, man. Greatest hair in Hollywood. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. He could do so much with it. And he was married to Gilda Radner, Rosanna Rosanna Dana. <laughs> she, honestly, those the were great the days. Gilda Radner. The great Gilda. So, um, favorite, uh, favorite moment, Gene Wilder moment? Favorite Gene Wilder moment, probably just how subtle he is in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory as well. Yeah, Willy, Willy Wonka, Wonka Mr. Wonka. He's amazing. He's amazing in that movie. He he's is. like he's supposed to be super weird, and he pulls it off like yeah. to the T. Not like he's not. He's he's just a little creepy, but not yes. like major creepy. No, but he's like so fun good. creepy. He's so yeah, subtle creepy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, subtle creepy is the way to do it. <laughs> I I really appreciated uh, Jerome Silverman uh, more than Gene Wilder. Jerome Silverman was that's he... his actual name. His actor name was. Are Gene you Wilder. serious, Jerome Silverman? I just learned that on Wikipedia. I did not know that. <laughs> he, I did not. Jerome. Know that. That's why I've always. Uh, you, I think. It, I think. I, I think. I know why we should call you Jerome instead of Jerem. Jerome. That's your new official that was, name. That was his stage and screen comic actor name. That's a great name. Hey, let's um, be honest though, Young Frankenstein uh-huh. as well. You mean Frankenstein? Uh, yeah, Frankenstein. Yeah. No, he was amazing in that movie. He totally was. And Blazing Saddles, the TV <laughs> version. It's all good. It's all good. Anything that Mel Brooks does is awesome. And I mean, and again, Mel Brooks ten years older than him, but outlived him. Yeah, how about that? Isn't that that's one of the crazy things of life? So, something that you won't outlive, folks. That I wanted to bring up with you is the Texas State Fair have. Uh, announced their food awards and okay. guess what the winner is we're all the winners fried jello oh boy Does that work america's favorite childhood dessert at the state fair what you do classic cherry flavored jello in a panko crusted breading flash fried to perfection and then powdered fried sugar jello? on top okay that actually does sound kind of good and i bet they put it on a stick i don't think you can put Jello on a stick. Well, oh, sure you can. If it's fried, maybe there's some <laughs> if, if you more try solid, hard enough. Uh, layer to it. I don't know. And tell me this doesn't sound good. good. This is, by the way, the exact same thing my wife said about me the other day. She said, this dish has the perfect amount of crunch to complement the jiggle. That <laughs> describes Spencer Linton. <laughs> Spencer Linton has the perfect amount of crunch to complement the jiggle. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hey, guys, talk about depth chart. I'm assuming that'll make your show today. Did you say death chart depth, or depth. depth chart? Yeah, yeah that's well, poorly played after uh, the Gene Wilder comes. Do we have oh. a death chart? <laughs> oh, Let's talk gosh. depth <laughs> chart. It's like, what, what was the time Brian, <laughs> Brian oh, Logan, you were gone, and Brian Logan said it was some, after It was after Taysom Hill's injury, and he's like, about, that's just a bad break for BYU. I said, <laughs> poor choice of words, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> It's terrible. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're going to dis- discuss the depth chart. So BYU has been very, um, I don't want to say secretive, but uh, tactical in their approach to mm-hmm. the start of the season where they have not allowed the media to watch uh, Jack squat. Really? Um, so the depth chart was the first grand reveal of, okay, who are the playmakers on this team? Because if you don't make, if you don't make the depth chart, you're probably not having a significant contribution on the team, at least initially. Yeah. Okay. They don't just leave off significant guys uh, like that regularly. So right. we'll talk to you. We'll, we'll talk about our surprises coming up, and who's th- there's a true freshman starting uh, at one position defensively that's 
not a huge surprise, but it just doesn't happen very huh. often. And then our biggest question mark um, associated with the depth chart uh, that we still don't have an answer to. Ooh. Do you, want, what, do you want to give us that question? These people eat a lot. Oh, linemen. I gave it away. <laughs> ah. No, there's two sides to that, though, right? Interesting. There I was going to say there are, there are two, there sides, are two to sides to yeah. that. I was going to so. say young women at girls' camp, but then I thought yeah. I better just go with linemen. <laughs> and and uh, Corbin Kafusi made the depth chart. Is he a starter mm. or not? Yes, yeah. that's a good show. Of what else? It Anything is. else? Anything else? Blaine oh, Fowler, David Nixon, David will Nixon? Land? you know, David Nixon played in the NFL for four years. Matt, he played against Arizona three times. Yeah, this is good. It's mm-hmm. a good show. So we're going to go after that. And Blaine Fowler is Uncle B, man. He's the crazy uncle that everybody loves. <laughs> yeah. The, the the one that everyone talks about when he leaves? <laughs> yes. That one? Or the uh-huh. other one? There's a top 10 team on campus at BYU. Mm. And probably will be two top 10 teams on campus after today. Man. Who's through? God, so we just have to listen to your show, don't we? Yes. And I have some... Oh, yeah, I have free tickets to the BYU-Arizona football game, too. Oh, yeah, we might want to pay attention to that. So they just need to only sit on for about six more minutes, and then you guys will be on with the perfect amount of crunch to compliment your jiggle. (laughs) (laughs) And BYU wins another off-the-field championship. We'll tell you how. Oh, speaking of, Jerem, we need to to have our cheers about that. Jerome? Oh, yeah, we do. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you guys Thank are going to do a cheer? You're going to do a cheer? Yep. On will. your show? Yep. Okay. That's a big show. That's all lined up. Go. I know you got to go wax on, wax off. Get ready. We're ready, man. Knock them dead and okay. uh, make sure you flash fry that. Yes. To perfection. Holler! Holla! There's always room for fried jello. <laughs> <laughs> See you guys. Bye. Have a great show. There's always money in the banana stand. You got to love that. There's always money in the banana stand. Oh, fun! Uh, what you know? Where do you go from that? They've got a great show lined up. It's fun when football season gets back in because they just locked and loaded. They don't have to talk hypothetically anymore. They can just actually review what's going on. Hey, we got a, another uh, really kind of stupid criminal moment here that uh, you know the bad boys of the world need to pay attention to. A Connecticut man is accused of brandishing a sword at his ex-roommate when he was retrieving some food. Travis Vartarella, 20, was charged with aggravated menacing. The victim was a former roommate. He had moved out, Norwalk Law Director Stuart O'Hara said. The man returned to the apartment to retrieve his belongings Sunday. O'Hara said the victim was putting some items, which included pizza rolls, into a box when Vartarella reportedly brandished a sword. He said, leave my blank pizza rolls alone, O'Hara said, quoting an officer's report. He also threatened to stab the victim with a pocket knife. After the ex-roommate called 911, the defendant gathered up his swords to hide them, and uh, the prosecutor noted that the police searched the apartment and seized the sword in question. Pizza rolls. So good. You'll brandish a sword to avoid sharing them. We, um... We're now, I guess, sponsored by pizza rolls. So good, you'll brandish a weapon. One of the things we've been doing on the show is uh, we're here to help people, and we want to help as much as we can. Earlier, we talked about a story um, in the day. We talked about a story 
of a woman who was mandated to go take classes for decision-making because she had uh, had some criminal bench warrants. And uh, so the judge said, look, you need to go learn how to make better decisions in your life. Well, while she was taking the decision-making course called Thinking Matters, she made some bad decisions and then tried to escape through the roof or the ceiling of the courthouse. And because of that, and for all of us out there in listener land, we've put together a little PSA about the importance of thinking. Whenever you find yourself before a judge, think before you plea. If you've recently gone through a messy breakup with your significant other, and you want to get back at them by vandalizing their car, think before you key. If you've had too much Dr. Pepper to drink on a long road trip and decide to stop on the side of the road to relieve yourself, think before you wee. And the next time you're taking a court-ordered class on decision-making called Thinking Matters and are toying with the idea of attempting a getaway via the ceiling, please think before you flee. This message brought to you by thinkers across America. Great advice from the Matt Townsend Show. Just think a little bit more. Hey, as we wrap up the show, we always like to talk about a hero story, kind of uh, highlight the heroes of the day. CNN.com highlighted one. The very first day of school for a child is always hard, but it was even harder than usual for a four-year-old Jackson Sherlin, who started pre-K this week without his father. His dad, Amarillo, Texas police officer Justin Sherlin, died two weeks ago after complications from a crash while he was on duty. But Jackson didn't have to walk up to the doors of his new school alone. Sherlin's brothers and sisters in blue uh, were there with Jackson every step of the way. A ton of officers showed up at Jackson's elementary school when he started his first day. They lined up to wish him good luck. And they gave him hugs. Jackson Sherlin walks with members of the Amarillo Police Department on his first day of school. He was shocked when he first showed up and saw everything. Jessica Sherlin told CNN affiliate KVII. I think uh, Jackson really enjoyed having everyone here. Just to know that he's still loved by the Blue family and they still care. Emotionally, it's awesome to see. Uh, It was also gratifying for Justin Sherlin's fellow officers. They said, I'd give it all back just to have Justin here with his son said Officer Daniel Smith. At least we can be here for him and let Jackson know that he will always have someone to call in. So you did it, Amarillo Police Department, for taking care of little Jackson Sherland. Uh, Again, folks, a hero story. And you too can be a hero, and you are a hero for somebody. Uh, You don't have to always go out of your way to be the hero. Sometimes you just need to be present and stay there and, and just meet the needs they need. Matt. Well, that's the show. We can't do it without you. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more tools to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. We'll talk again then.